Beep is so mad at us right now. <laughs> I know. No, I'm not mad. I just think you're wrong. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you. You're just wrong. <laughs> That's the best way to have an internet debate. <laughs> That's usually how they go, right? Um. <laughs> Welcome to the Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. As always, early warning, this is a rewatch podcast. We will spoil the entire series early and often. Go finish it and come back to us if you have not watched season four. Uh, I am Beep, one of your co-hosts. You can find me on Twitter at Beepsplain. I am joined, as always, by my lovely Cece. Hey, you can find me at A Capital Chuck. Boom, you got it. Thank you. I know I mess it up, Selena, like every time. (laughs) This week we happen to have with us, our guest is Selena Wilkin. She is a writer over at Hypable, does uh, television reviews primarily for The 100, but runs a podcast and does all sorts of entertainment stuff. Selena, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yay, Yay. we're so glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. Um, So I'm a writer over in Hypeville, and I do a bunch of entertainment stuff. And what else did you say? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I'm so excited to be here. I um, I got forced into watching movies, <laughs> and I got um, by CC and very very uh, kindly uh, urged and nudged and pushed uh, <laughs> into continuing and, and and watching it and talking about it. So I'm I'm just so thrilled that you guys are doing this podcast and that I have a chance to to share my thoughts and and it's oh my gosh I obviously love television because um, I write about it and I have done for way too many years at Hypable but it's so rare that you come across a show like this one you know it's like it's like the Battlestar Galactica or the Lost or you know <clears throat> stuff like that but it, I mean you guys have said it already I'm sure probably but it's so underrated and so f- far too many people too few people know about the show so um, I'm just happy to be here. And be a part of spreading the the word. Yeah, Ooh, <laughs> nice unintended. one. Um, you did intend it. Yes, I did. <laughs> <You> both- <laughs> Um, and it, actually, it's so fun to have you on because you were the one I kept being like, someone should do like this. The, you guys should do a podcast. And you're funny. Like, why don't, why don't you just do the it's podcast? So funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm so happy you made me watch it. I'm so happy to be here talking about it. But it was just so funny. You kept being like, you should write about it. You should. And you'd already written an, an amazing article for Hypable about it. And you're like, you should do a podcast about it. It was like, it was clearly you. <laughs> and, wanted to do it and who had all the, the enthusiasm and stuff. So I'm just, I'm glad that. It's you doing it. And I think you're our first international guest. So where are you recording from? I'm recording from Denmark. Cold and dark and icy Denmark. (laughs) But I will soon be So it's like the flip, right? Like it's Hmm? Denmark is icy and Iceland is nice. Mm -hmm. Like is that how that works? No, it's uh, the flip is Greenland and Iceland. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. And and Greenland has ice. American ignorance. My bad. (laughs) It's all good. There was a lot of Vikings at some point, right? Yes, and all those places. To sum up, Vikings. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, are you ready to enter our gauntlet of questions? We ask every guest. All right. So you uh, you touched off a little bit, but Selena, our first question is: Why do you love Twelve Monkeys? Because you made me. 
the end. No. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think it is so great. Like I said Battles of Galactica earlier, and I think honestly that's probably the best comparison I can make. And not just because I know if anyone from the show is listening, they're going to be like so excited because I know they love it. <laughs> but so do I. Um, I think that it's, it's just the the kind of thoughtful sci-fi time travel obviously i love who doesn't love time travel but you get the the perfect um the perfect uh, trilogy or whatever you say of 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 good storytelling and a really compelling sort of imaginative narrative that can go anywhere and these characters that can take you through from beginning to end like there's a story thread and there's a character thread and it's so well thought out and so complete and i think um I think I was talking to you about this, how it was like around the beginning of season two that they began outlining the entire rest of the show, right? So from that point on, they pretty much knew everything that was going to happen. And it's so clear and it's so well-threaded and you get to the end. And like you guys, I remember when you guys were all watching it live and I hadn't watched the show yet and I just saw all these like, oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> these like massive freakouts on social media. And I was like, how how could it possibly be this good? But it was because it, it went back and, and you could go back. Like immediately after I finished the finale, I went back and started the pilot because that's like that's that's the feeling you want it's to finish even a season but especially a series finale and immediately want to go back and watch with with a fresh perspective because you have all the pieces of the puzzle right so right. and it's a true loop i mean it goes right, right like back literally to- yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So i can't wait for the answer to this to this question. <laughs> Who is your favorite character? So my favorite characters are uh, Ramsey and Jones and it's a really hard wow. life, you guys. <laughs> These are some rough episode. episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's also super contradictory. I feel it like is. they're always yeah. bad. But they're, we'll get into this, but it's because they're the same, you know, but we'll get there. But like, basically, yeah, it's 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 tough, but it's, it's, it's not that contradictory, really, when you think about it. Yeah, but I'm excited. We haven't had a Ramsey, a Ramsey stan <laughs> I, on I yet. So and yeah. I'm so excited to talk about that too because I think I wasn't a part of the fandom. I have no idea. I get the feeling that Ramsey wasn't very popular, but I'm not sure. And I have like I have like feelings about that, even though I don't actually know if it's true because ah, I just I love him so much and I feel like he's so misunderstood and I don't know if that's true. <laughs> well yeah, I but, think actually it's funny because our conversation is a little bit in a post live watch fandom Mm -hmm. vacuum Mm -hmm. because I was you know I'm old and I was still figuring out social media when I watched the first (laughs) when I watched the first two seasons on binge and then I just kind of watched it I think maybe because of the way they aired it was during the summer I watched in a bubble so when I now hear things like for example people giving Cassie a really hard time during Mm, season two and things like that it's so interesting like what someone's reaction is watching in a bubble to a character versus when you're part of like a wider fandom conversation and right. how that influences you. Yeah. And you, sorry, not to cut you off. I, I was yeah, saying, yeah. like, you know, that it's, it's, re- you don't realize how much the fandom conversation affects you, like, versus when you're not a part of it. Because I was thinking for Ramsey, especially, like, it really affected me, like, my viewing of Ramsey and the show, how I thought the audience was going to interpret it, right? Because I'm so used to, especially with a show like The 100, like, you just, you micromanage the fandom all the time, and you, mm-hmm. you're you so aware of how the fandom feels about every sp- character and, and development. And so when I was, like, trying to form my view of, of Ramsey and the show, I kept thinking, 
like I, I kept catching myself and thinking, oh, the show treats Ramsey really unfairly, like it doesn't give enough credit to his perspective. But then at some point I realized that the only reason I think that is because I assume that his actions would make the fandom react a certain way. And I have no idea if that's true. Do you know what I mean? Like, does that make any yeah. sense? Like my mm -hmm. sort of view of how the show was treating Ramsey was based on my perception of how I thought that he was being perceived. So, it, <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's really, it just, it really makes you think, I think when you, when you enter a show that has the potential to evoke such strong feelings in people and you have no idea what those feelings actually are, you have to right. just make up your own mind for a change. Yeah. I mean, particularly so, when you have a show with characters who their point of views are colliding. Right. The way like that who they are. are supposed to side with, you know? Right. Right. And, they, and the show, I think, leaves it up to the audience to draw their own conclusions. So, you know, sometimes my husband and I would be watching and we'd be like, yeah, I totally get what Ramsey's doing, man. And then I would mm. talk to someone and they'd be like, what? What the <laughs> hell is Ramsey doing? And we're like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. <laughs> See, I do, I do think, and and like we can talk about this when we get into it. I do think the show skewers towards Jones. Like, I think if anyone is being favored in their perspective, maybe it's her. But I also, I don't think it's it's a lot. You know, I just think it's a it's a matter of like the the central thread of characters and perspectives. And it's also like you also have to like the main characters who how they feel about characters affects how you feel about them. So it's like because Cassie hates Ramsey. Mm -hmm. I'm like, am I supposed to hate? Like, it's the show telling me that because she hates Ramsey, I'm supposed to hate Ramsey. I don't think that's true, but it's just those kinds of things that you think about yep. as you watch it. Absolutely. So who wants to write the dissertation on, like, the effects of social media on how we consume Oh, my God, that's yeah. what I did. That was my master's dissertation. <laughs> I already did it. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, yeah. Cece doesn't have to, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no more school it for me. It could be more than one. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, no, seriously, it's it's really interesting how, how social media sort of um, – affects your your thought anyway that's a different discussion <laughs> <laughs> um so do, can you do you have a favorite moment that's like a standout moment to you oh god um i'm totally blanking right now but i think the i think the as cheesy as it is the the episode where they saved um what's her name um What's, what's her name? Sarah? Hannah? Her name? Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Poor Sarah. She's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Han like that one. It was so beautiful because you kind of like slowly throughout the episode, you began to realize like, you know, where it was going and, and what they might have to do. You were like, I, I was like, the show is never going to do that. Like in no way, no way are they going to do it. Like, oh my God, are they really going to do it? And then you get to that moment and it's just so overwhelming. Um, I love that one. I also love when um, when Jennifer was singing for the Nazis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and I remember when you were watching that, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That performer looks an awful lot like Jennifer. <laughs> that was so good. Um, do you have a favorite episode? Mm, off the top of my head, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I can't think of any. Um, it's hard because you binged it, right? It is, it yeah, all. right. And, and I didn't even have because I was watching it on um, HBO Nordic, <laughs> which doesn't show the episode titles, so I didn't even know what I was watching as I was watching it. <laughs> oh wow! Wow, HBO Nordic. I know, right? It's so, <laughs> so foreign. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, it just sounds so like I want to go there. Yeah. But um, you know what's funny though is before like. TiVo, unless you were like reading TV Guide or something. You never I mean, knew an episode you didn't, title. Yeah, you had yeah. no idea. Like for the longest time, I didn't even know episodes had titles. <laughs> right. mm -hmm. I just thought they were like numbered, you know? Right, and then yeah. you come and see it and you're like, 
wow, that's a lot of information I was missing because often they're so telling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So my next question, I'm actually super curious where you're at right now because I feel like this has been a journey for you. Okay. Do you think Cassie stopped the countdown? Oh, my God. (laughs) Do I think she's uh, – I saw this question in the doc and I was like, I don't know what to say because, like, I (laughs) – instinctually i think she did but i don't want to think it and you remember my post it's like watching it freak out because i was like no um i think that the the points against her stopping it are really compelling and i want to believe it but in my heart i i don't totally believe it i think it was too too neat how they all ended up with their loved ones and i thought it was like the thing like some sons are fated to their fathers i was like that but are they though? <laughs> you know, and then I think the oh god, I I don't know. I mm, I I want to <laughs> so eloquent. <laughs> you want so you want to you I want, want to, to believe, believe that she, she stopped, stopped the it. countdown. Yes, but I'm not 100% convinced that she did because I think there was enough set up about like her not being sure that it really could have gone either way. Mm-hmm. I think that was the brilliance of it that you really can't be sure. Mm-hmm. I know. I, I I know how you feel, Selena. Um, <laughs> do um, would you stop the countdown? This is also oh, this is such a tough question. I cannot wait to hear you guys' answers when I go back and listen. But um, it's I was I was thinking about this, and I want again. I want to be the kind of person that would say that would say I would stop it or not stop it. What's what's the way that like to save the world? But honestly, like I'm not totally sure because. Like, it's a really tough question, this whole, like, do you want to live forever in one mo- happy moment or do you want to endure, like, a whole life that whatever happens ends with, like, everyone you love dying and you dying and, and like, all the pain related to that, right? So you're like, are you going to make the decision to give everyone alive, like, not just yourself, but everyone alive, like, ev- everyone who might never have had a chance to live until they're old and experience all the good things, even if that eventually ends, are you going to give them a chance to live in a happy moment now? Or are you going to like abandon everyone to their fates, whether that's death at 90 or death at like a much younger age and pain and all that stuff. So I think it's tough. I honestly, I'm not sure I would save the world. Um, I'm glad I didn't have to make the decision. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think... I think it's there's I feel like there's two layers to the choice. The first is what you just alluded to that you're making that decision for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's that's a, like an added layer of like a moral dilemma as opposed to when people compare the red forest for ex- on 12 monkeys to for example the city of light on the 100 which is another sort of alternative reality involving consciousness where everybody Kind of, depending on the situation, some people got to make their own choice. This is you ha- you're deciding it for everyone, right? And you don't know what's around. Like all it is is based on a theory, and you don't know what it's actually going to be, right? So like that's a that's like sort of the first step. Like would I make that choice for everyone, as mm-hmm. opposed to like would you personally make the choice for yourself? Like, choose to live in that one. I mean, honestly, like, and that's tough too, right? Because if you if you don't make the like, you're gonna die eventually. You know, like it's mm-hmm. not like you're choosing to live forever in in like linear time or to live forever in like stationary time. So it's like, do you want to like? actually like live in some kind of like quote unquote like heaven for the for for eternity or do you want to just like 
die and cease to exist? I don't know. I don't think it's an easy, easy answer. See, I was never convinced that it was a positive thing. Yeah, I, I thought I it think was it's because more of the guy. hellish. Okay, interesting. I mean, Shaw, I, I get and beep you. It's interesting because you go back to what we saw when you're like, for lack of a better way to put it, when, when you're on the outside of the Red Forest in season mm-hmm, two mm-hmm. and you see sort of like it lays waste to bodies and, you know, babies and di- being born and dying and all of that at the same time. Mm-hmm. But but you saw that guy who was. But happy I think there's there. contrast between the idea of like it being this perfect moment and the fact that everything exists at the same time because there is no time. Right. Like everything from the very beginning of time to the end of time, like existing all at once just sounds like horrific chaos to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, except that. Except that that is the best that the human mind could wrap itself around what breaking time and space would look like, right? So no one uh-huh. talking about it, nobody, none of the characters who are talking about it, regardless of what you think actually happened at the end, leading up to that moment, anybody who's talking about it, like mm-hmm. from Jones to Shaw, they don't actually know. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're all just trying to explain what they think it would be either through a negative lens or a positive lens. But no one knows because it's never happened. Right. So it's like this weird you have like a, hypo- a scientific hypothesis. And for some people, it's like religious faith or it's just a scientific hypothesis. But nobody knows the answer. Mm-hmm. So either either she stopped the countdown and will never know what it actually would be like or she didn't. And it is this like – um kind of like utopia where your consciousness gets to live right with and, all and of if the happy it's that then that's not that bad <laughs> you know it's a huge gamble though it's, oh it absolutely is. oh yeah for absolutely. sure but if you knew that was what it was yeah i mean the other thing is just the personal whenever i think about this i'm like i would really really like to think that i would stop the countdown right. but if i was standing there right and you told me that like the memory of the existence of my children right. and my husband were going to be erased. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, if I did do it, I sure as heck would have hesitated as long as Cassie did. Right, I just think right, that's human, yeah. like, tempt, like, is a huge self-sacrifice. And uh-huh. I would like to think I have that in me, but, like, I don't think you really know until you're in that position. I know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's only, like, self, you. it's only, like, heroic and self-sacrifice if you believe that the outcome, the alternative outcome is a bad one. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Beep is so mad at us right now. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm not mad. I just think you're wrong. (laughs) I'm not going to argue with you. You're just wrong. (laughs) That's the best way to have an internet debate. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually how they go, right? Um, (laughs) Selena, did you have a favorite era for um, just like costumes and aesthetics that you had the most, that you thought was the most fun? Oh, I really loved um, the first time they went back was it the 20s um the oh, with the 40s the 40s the, right yeah. i really loved the 40s i thought that was gorgeous and i think um i think they really had you could tell that they were really excited about that um being in those costumes and stuff like that uh and i really wish that they'd spent more time in like the wild west because i thought that was a lot of fun yeah. And that was really gosh. well done, too. Both of those are, like, standouts to me, not only with the costumes, but just, like, the cinematography. Yeah. Yeah, it looked gorgeous. Like, it looked, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, la, 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 we're, like, walking through a forest some, some, some time. It was yeah. really beautiful. 
Yeah. So did this show ever, this is our final question, did it ever make you cry? Did it ever make me cry? I Yeah, I think when um, when Hannah, when she was saved, I think I was like, like legitimately like sobbing at the screen because it was so beautiful and I was like half in like disbelief that they'd actually done it I thought it was so so beautiful and then I also think um I'm trying to think of a of a time of another time um it was somewhere around the end I think it was around the time when they were all sort of realizing that there was no nothing to do but to let uh um Cole go I, I, I sort of, it hit me like the gravity of it, I think, at that point. Oh, it, when they're all in the room and Cassie's like, yeah, yeah. we're owed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was so heart wrenching. I, I didn't cry when uh, Ramsey died. I think also when Jones died, I think I cried, but that was like oh. the finale. So that was like, just like so emotional <laughs> all around. But, um, mm. Not when jo- when uh, when Ramsey died because I was I was too busy being confused and like trying to work out what was going on like you know there were like three like two separate like fake things happening in the background of that scene that I was like trying to figure out so mm-hmm. I know but now if you go back and you watch them saying goodbye yes. at the end of the show and then yeah. stick that in the middle of right. like in the Pine Barrens yeah but it was like hurt. you could tell you could tell something had happened and I was like I, w- I was obviously sad but I was also just trying to figure out what it was you know like mm-hmm. it was sort of like a mystery more than a, a sad death whereas you know uh, what was his face uh, what was his name oh my god why am I forgetting all these names um, Deacon when he died I was like I was so mad <laughs> Oh, I wasn't even crying. I was just angry. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> we and so when you watched Brothers, you your antennas were actually up like you thought. There oh, was yeah, more to for the- sure. There were things wow. happening in that scene. And I was like, what is like, what did just because it was like the, the way it was shot with the trees. And they kept cutting to trees where there was nothing. And I was like, why? What is happening here? And then as well, like his words and you'll see me again or like whatever it was he said. I was like, oh, but we haven't seen that yet. Like, why did he say that there? And what has happened in between? So I like, I didn't know what it was, but I thought, and it turned out it was like two things because it was both Jones was there and he'd like been ripped out of time for a moment, right? So yeah, it was a really clever. Um, hmm. Wow, that is very that is why you do what you do for a living. That is really <laughs> astute because I just was basically like sobbing no. <laughs> and didn't know anything else was going on. Um, also fun. All right. So today we are discussing episodes 110 and 111. 110 is Divine Move. Um, the story is by Terry Metalis and Travis Fickett. And the teleplay is by Christopher Monfett. And it was directed by Magnus Martins. And then 111 is Shonen, written by Sean Tretta and directed by Mark Tondurai. Do you think that's – I hate when I butcher these names. Beep, I'm going to make you do this next time. How would you pronounce it, Beep? Tondurai? Mark Tondurai? I would go with that, yes. Okay, cool. All right, so just off the top, um, discussing Divine Moves, the episode title, it's yet another episode title in season one that is a reference to the game Go, which is the game I think we've talked a bunch, but it's the one that Ramsey is playing with Sam both in season one or talking to Sam about in season one, but then is what we see him playing with Sam um, in the epilogue. Um, And the term Divine Move is a, and this is off of, again, the esteemed website, Wikipedia, a truly inspired and original move. 
So a move that is not obvious and balances strategy and tactics. So it, it it turns a losing game into a winning game. So I don't know if this is like if we want to use like an American football um, analogous term. I think it's kind of like a very smart Hail Mary <laughs> that turns sort of the tide of the game. Um, but I guess as I was thinking I don't know if there's sort of more than one reference to what that could mean, but I think it obviously applies to when Ramsey is cornered at the end um, and he's locked in the the room with the time machine and he decides to take it and go back to the past. And it Mm -hmm. does, as we will find out um, in Shonen, it changes a lot (laughs) Um, or or it didn't change it because that's how it always how it always went but you know it's time travel so it's confusing um the other thing i think is interesting just sort of about the structure of the episode you have sort of these two like parallel paths of ramsey and aaron and these episodes are watching them get to a point where both of them are going to end up betraying the people that they're the the closest to um cole and cassie and undermining their efforts um to stop the plague in one form or another and oliver peters sort of works as a kind of preview to that in that he is somebody who's forced into a position of having to choose to do something to aid the army of the 12 monkeys or lose his husband um and he sadly does anyway because they murder his husband, regardless of what Oliver Peters does. Um, But I think it's kind of encapsulated at the end of the episode when Aaron, Cassie says to Aaron, referring to Peters, he thought he was saving his husband, but he still made a choice. And Aaron says, I get it. And it's just sort of like underlying the kinds of choices that Peters and Aaron Aaron and and Ramsey are all the positions they're all or, or they think that they are put in and the choices that they make. And the choice that Cassie eventually has to consider making as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like a, a prelude to the decisions that both, like, I guess both uh, Cassie and Cole have to make regarding, like, their son and at the very end when Cassie has to decide between the world and, and Cole, right? Right. There's so many characters that are put into the position of choosing right. their one versus yeah. yes. sort of the greater yeah. good. Yeah. So this is, so I feel like the first episode where they're really addressing that sort of, both with the characters discussing it and discussing, uh, you know, particularly that scene with Aaron and Cassie and Aaron, they're talking about somebody else, but Aaron might as well be describing his own inner turmoil as to what, what's going on. Um, they all, it also sows the seeds for what is going to be a source of conflict between Cassie and Cole heading into season two. Because you have Aaron and Ramsey both betraying them. And Cassie, the circumstances are a little bit different, but Cassie, you know, Aaron ends up dying and they end up leaving him in that fire. And yet Cole is going to be unable to shoot Ramsey. And that's going to be a big source. That's going to be a big problem for Cassie <laughs> at the beginning of season two. Um, <laughs> yeah, why couldn't so- he just shoot his best friend? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We have Team Ramsey on this podcast. I love it. Um, so, I mean, the episode opens with sort of this, oh, my God, Ramsey is lighting shit on fire. And I think it's sort of interesting or consistent with his character that even when he is acting Contrary to Project Splinter, he's still trying to draw moral lines. So he's going to light a fire and he's going to burn down. Um, he's going to take the vials and he's going to set their evidence board on fire. But he's going to he's going to move Adler out of the way. Um, or at the end of the episode, when he comes back to try and blow the time machine up, he shows mercy to Whitley because Whitley tried to 
sort of, I guess, an eye for an eye um, when Elena's died. So I think it's interesting that even when they have Ramsey betraying the rest of the characters that we ostensibly are rooting for, he is still trying to draw lines, even as he did in Atari, of even when I'm doing this, I'm still trying to find like, what is the choice that not as many people get hurt? Mm. Well, and that's interesting, though, too, because like you just said, like, there's Ramsey, and then there are the people that we're maybe encouraged to root for. But that's like, that's when I find the show at its most interesting. Because, again, are we not maybe meant to root for Ramsey a little bit here? Like, what is it about Ramsey's actions here that turn us against him? In, in in the scope of like what he's doing and what he's fighting for. And I think like you said, like punching Adler is a really interesting thing to make him do because it does, it's the one action in the episode that goes against his moral compass. And I think it is sort of a way to 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 nudge the audience a little bit to be again it's almost like a an, an um reverse save the cat moment, right? Because it's like you what do you do like to make an audience not root for a character. You make it like hurt a character that you like like the closest thing they have to a puppy right now is is adler right so it's like what do you do you make ramsey punch him and immediately everyone's like he's evil and then like obviously he he can't actually be evil because it's not an evil character so then they have to sort of backtrack a little bit and make sure that we know that there is a morality to him right but it's like it's a very fine balance like that makes me think that they want us to feel a certain way about ramsey i just don't know what the way is Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, too, is that when you talk about sort of why am I – and it, I think it depends. I think it's life experience people bring while they're watching this conflict play out. Um, I think it's also – I find sometimes like when characters – when you have these moral conflicts where you can make an argument on one side or the other, if there's also an element that feels like a personal betrayal – to a relationship right. that an audience yeah. is invested in. So here, Cole and Ramsey, that when one character is acting in a way that it feels like a betrayal to the other, then it then you then it's hard to approach that moral choice just as a logical like thought experiment and not feel the emotion that mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. surrounds it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it, it does make really sense. I'm, I'm like so, so like aware that I'm going to be like, be like sidetracking so much. So maybe I should just like say it now and like um, have it said. But like this is actually like this, the, the interesting thing I, I feel like about how Ramsey and Jones's moralities are set up against each other um, and why I, I, I love them both, but why I think they're ultimately equal in, in morality and in sort of, and, and it's interesting to see how e- how much easier it is um, to root for Jones as opposed to rooting for Ramsey because Jones had that moment, even though it wasn't a character that we liked, when in when they raided the facility, whatever it was, with the com- the commune Spearhead. place, and she mm-hmm. killed um, the general. Mm-hmm. And that was a character, even though we hardly knew him, we'd come to sort of like him. We'd come to see what he was doing. We later found out that actually his his vaccine had been working. Jones knew this. She lied. She shot him because she had an agenda, which was essentially the same agenda that Ramsey has in this episode. Like Jones is, we believe Jones when she says that she's fighting to save everyone. But that's just as a, you know, it, 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 I'm, I'm sure she is, but she's also fighting it's for just Hannah. Convenient. Like the thing that's driving her is Hannah, right? Whereas right. the thing that's um, 
Ramsay never says it's for everyone. Ramsay is always very clear about his motive. He wants to save his son. But at the end of the day, like, why is that worse than like what Jones is doing? Like, I think, I think ultimately, I think their stories are so similar and their actions and what they're willing to do. It's so similar. It's the same thing. And I think it is, it is really sort of, a, even just for myself, like a psychological experiment to pay attention to how I perceive these characters and why, it, even for me, it's easier to root for Jones over Ramsey, even though I think, like, I, I, I thought it was when Jones shot the general. I'm still sort of like, it's, it's, it was the, like the almost unforgivable thing that a character mm. could do but ultimately like she's she's a complicated interesting character and she doesn't have to be like that's the beauty of 12 monkeys characters don't have to be like morally pure none of them are morally pure and you still root for them right um, but i i do i think it is so interesting and i think it is so interesting how we have this ultimately this conflict between well do you do you save people in the past or do you save the people that live now like do you go back to a a, a disaster that that wiped out like millions of people and do you undo that disaster even though like they never really because Ramsey never takes on the perspective that he's fighting for everyone in the present you never really get that debate to the forefront but it's still there you know mm -hmm. it's kind of like if we like there's so many like examples that you could use for this but if you just say let's say you went back to the middle ages and you had a chance to undo the plague <laughs> that wiped out like most of Europe would mm -hmm. you do it? Like, I know it's different because you don't have like personal people that you knew back then, but would you say, well, those people didn't deserve to die. It's the morally correct thing. We have the chance to go back and, and, and make sure nobody got sick. Let's do it, even though our reality wouldn't exist anymore. Or do you say, well, it happened. It's like, is there a time limit? Is there some point when you say, well, it's, it's ancient history. It's not our problem anymore. The people that right. live now have the, like, the, the first right to life now you know like right. when does it when does it end when do you is say, there like a statute of limitations right it's on like, how far you can go back it's but all that's the, a really the, interesting way to frame it selena it's, the, it's I don't like think, do yeah. we kill hitler debate right it's like do we do it or do we not like if you had the chance would you do it when you're not doing what would the repercussions be right well that's but that's also really interesting because you're when you say would you go back to the middle ages mm -hmm. but then that would erase everyone yeah. i guess that it gives us emotional distance right. that, so like, that no, Foster and Jones do don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the only thing that's sort of asymmetrical is if you were going to look at Jones versus, and I guess if you actually put Ramsey and Foster together, because mm -hmm. they're kind mm -hmm. of articulating yeah. different pieces of the counter argument. Um, I guess the only thing is if you're looking at it through a utilitarian lens, more people die if you follow Ramsey and Foster than if you follow Jones. But again, that's only a utilitarian lens. Right. And there's it, other ways. Point, because like right. everyone, I know that like less people are alive now, but then everyone that would have followed after that for eternity wouldn't exist. Right. Versus if everyone stayed alive, like let's say it's actually reality where we're like melting the ice, <laughs> you know, at <laughs> yep. the poles and we're like polluting everything and we might like end the world anyway, you know? Like, whereas yeah. here, they've erased all, like, technology. Like, there might be, like, environmental. There's, there's a lot of stuff to consider, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I just think it's so interesting because it says a lot, like, we have these two sides of the debate, but ultimately it becomes personal for the audience and for the characters. It's like, who do you, like, who do you, bo both in terms of, like, a personal fight for someone you love in the present or the future, but also it's, like, Ramsey versus Jones. That's what it boils down to, right? 
Right, which we should probably, I mean, I think it makes sense, even though it happens at the end of the episode, I think it makes sense to talk now <laughs> about, no, that final confrontation between Ramsey and Jones, where Ramsey is the first character, I mean, granted, he had access to her personal things in her room, but he's the first character that figure that that didn't previously know but figures out that Jones had a daughter. Right. Yeah. Um and he's a- I think he's able to do that because he's motivated by exactly the same thing in that moment mm-hmm. that he's motivated to save his son. And when Jones tells Ramsey, maybe you Ramsey would have a better future even though his son is erased, it mm-hmm. made me want to like throw something at the screen at Jones. Right. Cause you're like, are it's you? So hypocritical. <laughs> right. Right. And it, that's why it's so great. Right. Cause there, are, he's calling her out and she's still coming back with these like lofty, like, yes, but we'd have a better future. And it's like, but you're not with the, th- the thing that you're asking Ramsey to sacrifice, mm-hmm. Jones is not willing to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, they are in some ways kind of the same, like, same side. Well, I'm totally like blanking on the conversation. They are, like, yeah, the like two sides, two sides of the same, of the same coin, coin. Right, right. exactly. And that moment at the end, um, it kind of really crystallizes it um, and makes you question. Wait a minute, like they're both really ultimately doing it for personal reasons. So I think yeah. this argument though is presented multiple times in multiple ways across the series. And even though you're right that I think it slants like slightly toward Jones. I think it's always left for you to make your decision on perhaps what you would do or just to constantly make you uncomfortable. But I think mechanically what it boils down to is if the show sided with Ramsey, there's no story. Mm, Okay. How come? Well, I mean, the whole purpose of it is, you know, the going back in time and the time travel and all that stuff. Like it would just kind of end if they decided well, to that, that would actually that on. would be really interesting though if the story like let's say the story like Ramsey was the hero then like the protagonists would kind of be the villains that would actually be kind of interesting which, no, which is kind saying, of what yeah yeah, yeah. but um, that's what's shown it and that's what the end right when you get to see everything from the army of the 12 monkeys perspective what they call the period of interference right yeah is is basically the flip side if you if you imagined you know the start of this show You've got Joan, they have a problem, and that's to stop a plague. And you have an evidence board with all of the clues that they're trying to figure out what they know within the parameters of what's happened in the past. And then they're trying to figure out what they should do. Now, the flip side of that is what if the show had started with Olivia (laughs) and the pallid man in a room? Right. (laughs) And they had the word of the witness, and they had Ramsey's notes. And they're like, what we're trying to do is achieve, (laughs) is to solve the problem that everyone dies, right? Right. It's like the fun fundamental and and we know these things and we're fighting against project splinter oh my god and we only have these clues to work from and we're trying to achieve a reality that's better for all of humanity and the people that are interfering with that and always feel like they're a step ahead of them because we see the paladin pissed off right uh-huh. that he had all these missions and he, and you just saw it all from the other perspective and that's kind of I like mean, the glimpse we get at shonen right. which yeah. And we never get like we never really get that because they are kind of they are villains, you know, especially at this point. Like they're very mustache twirling villains. Um but that Although that been, starts to shift. Yeah, I it think does. that starts it to does. shift yeah, in these episodes. But it yeah. would have been really interesting. Like it would have been I a whole other show, obviously, but it would have been so interesting to legitimately have that like big picture um like ambiguity as to what was the right path but just to answer your point Beep, I I was just gonna say I I do agree that 
what I really appreciate that they keep Ramsey, like Ramsey never devolves into a villain. And I think a lesser show would have fallen into that trap, you know, of mm-hmm. having him sort of go along with the heroes for most of season one. And then in season two, he begins to shift to the dark side. And then he actually is evil and just, you know, does evil things for the rest of the show. And and they don't do that. They keep the perspective on him. They let him represent the other side and they you know they they let the other main characters treat him terribly and they still give um credence to his perspective <laughs> sorry oh War absolutely flashbacks. and we credence. discussed Jeez. last time that <laughs> um one of the most difficult things was never that ramsey was particularly wrong it was just hard harder for people in i think certain life stages to relate to him because right, yeah. we as an audience did not care about sam no, exactly. Like that's the thing. Like they, they, they never really. That's that's what I mean. Like when when you look at which way it's slanted, I don't think that Ramsey is is quite allowed because Sam because Sam doesn't matter like really matter to anyone but Ramsey because um what's her face like literally dies for like and she's gone forever um because Ramsey never expresses like a macro narrative about like he does a little bit but you know like the macro narrative like like maybe there's a future worth protecting because that kind of devolves into well it's about stopping the plague or the red forest taking over everything you know um or stopping the 12 monkeys rather uh but but i but i do think like even though i would have i would have liked Ramsey to to like and sam and that perspective to get a little bit more val like credence because i do think it would have allowed the audience to not just automatically maybe take Jones's and 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 Cassie's and and Cole's perspective. I do still think there is value in keeping Ramsey like the the way they did it with Ramsey as a point of view character throughout, and as most of the time the guy who was like running around frantically in the background trying to save the day, and like nobody that like, cared, <laughs> like nobody thanked Aww. him except for Cole. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and we talked a lot about last week, though, and that's what I was mentioning, too, with the life stages. Like, Cece definitely understood that. A parent understood that, but things like, you know, I don't have children, and so that didn't land with me on an immediate in an immediate way, and because mm. Sam was was underdeveloped and Elena, so you know, was, just was gone, like you said, nowhere. it just... Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think I, that's a timing issue. That's also what we discussed last week. The other mm-hmm. thing with Ramsey... Um, because I think it makes sense we're sort of in the thick of it. The other thing with Ramsey that, you know, uh, we talked a little bit on our last podcast, like one of the reasons why I find Cole and Ramsey's bromance, their friendship so compelling and moving is because like kind of at its, when you strip it down to its uh, like essence, they're two men trying to figure out how to be good men in really, really difficult situations. And Ramsey... Whether it's just in this episode, like think about how many times Ramsey adjusts his plan in and and is forced because forced to because of circumstances make it increasingly drastic, right? At the beginning of the episode, all he does is destroy the evidence and take the vials. That's it. It's not like at the top of the episode, he's like, I'm going to blow up the time machine, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Then he's forced because of Whitley's raid and knowing that they're not going to give up and they're going to keep coming after the vials. That's and then obviously there's an emotional component because Elena's been killed. Um, he then goes in as like, okay, then I'm going to blow up the time machine. Right? It's not like he was at the beginning of the episode like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to travel in the past and I'm going to go help the army of the twelve monkeys like pull off this plot. Right? He's like continually forced 
by the evolving circumstances into more and more drastic action culminating with the end with like what the episode's named after like the divine move he's back into a corner and he he then is like okay well then my the only thing i can do is then go into this time machine and that's what we realize kind of changed the whole game and is why Mm -hmm. cassie and cole and jones were one step behind this whole time that we've been watching season one but at the beginning of season two he continues to evolve right like so he will now help cole but but he will draw lines like, for example, when they convince Jennifer not to drop the vial and they're in the airport, he's like, look, I- I'm going to help you, but I am not going to be the one to actually physically do the thing that erases my son. Right? So he's constantly yeah. grappling with these changing circumstances, trying to protect his son, trying to draw lines about even while I'm doing this, like – this action, I'm going to pull Adler out of the way, or I'm going to spare Whitley, or I'm going to help Cole, but I'm not going to actually take the action that erases my son. He's constantly just in it, like in the gray and grappling with like, what is, what's the right thing to do when there is no clear answer about what the mm-hmm. quote unquote right thing to do is. One and- thing I will definitely sympathize with Ramsey about as well is his plan all along never involves harming Cole besides you know barring the 1987 issue that was not necessarily like within his control it he keeps the idea of that relationship intact whereas Cole's plan like um excuse me erases the other person that's the most important to Ramsey Ramsey's keeps you know not only his son but also his brother intact yeah that and that is although cassie will die (laughs) well (laughs) so care about that (laughs) yeah he's like she's already dead right so like yeah (laughs) literally and multiple times (laughs) (laughs) but no that is that is one of the things that is genuinely i think you you said it really ironically (laughs) you you don't like ramsey but you said it really well like that's why i really really do like ramsey he is i think uncommonly reasonable you know, for a, a, not just like a television character, but just like a, the type of character that he was, because like I said, like it was, it would be so easy for the show to, to vilify him or to simplify his perspective or to allow him to sort of play, like to exist as a, as a plot element for Cole. But I think what they, they kept his, his, um, they kept him sort of like an independent agent in his own story, like all throughout the show, it's almost like he is the star of his own show. <laughs> and mm-hmm. like, and I love that show. No, um, but it's almost <laughs> like he is, he is literally, like he is not, what he does and what he thinks and what he says and what he chooses is not contingent on some grand master plan. I mean, it obviously is the sh- that the show has, but it's also, it's, it just makes sense. Like the things he does and the things he says, he evolves. Like you said, like he, he goes to extremes because he has to, he gets pushed to extremes, but he can still come back from that. He can still like that moment in the season two episode, like premiere when he chose to stay with Cole. It was just, it was such a good moment. It really set the pace for his, his character because he will like think, he will actually think and keep a level head. And even when he's being tortured and he's being shunned and he's being just like all the problems in the world are being blamed on Ramsey <laughs> all the time oh, no. and people are threatening his son. Like he still manages to think logically about things. And I think that they, it's there are way too few TV characters that are afforded 
sort of independent thought, you know, and to consider multiple perspectives, even when their arc is moving them down a certain path. So I, I, I really do appreciate that. I d- see now I don't dislike Ramsey. I don't want to be okay, unclear I about that. <laughs> it's no, no, no. It's I think it's harder to side with him at sometimes. It's it's harder for me to see his true motivation because I don't care about the people he cares about. But the one thing I will say is very, very interesting about Ramsey, and this is coming up in a little bit, is how adamant he is against being called the witness. And being very clear that he was never intent on destroying anything. And like you said, he's he's existing in this microcosm of the few people that are important to him and the loyalty that he has. And he's never involved in wanting to destroy, you know, the world or being active in that. He's simply saying, you know, let it happen the way it happened. But I'm not that guy. I don't want to be associated with that. That's not who I am. Like, he is so adamant about, you know, when Cole's like, I know who the witness is or whatever. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, that's not me. I have nothing to do with this. Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of, um, yes. He is also, though, telling them everything that's going to happen and enabling them to ultimately get. Now, it's interesting talking about it now because now we know who really dropped the vial. (laughs) So, right. But like, if you were still sort of like in the mind frame of the characters in season two, when they are grappling with Ramsey's return and how they feel about that, I'd for sure get both sides, right? Like they have been through going through this epic struggle to try and prevent an outbreak of a plague that kills 7 billion people. And Ramsey was sitting, you know, in an armchair with Olivia telling them everything that that the entire like the heroes of the show were doing and one one group is trying to stop the outbreak of a plague and the other one is trying to make sure that that happens and he's aiding them so right conversely that already happened for him you have to realize even though you're looking at time from that linear standpoint as far as like the idea that it happened because of him it had already happened for him so yeah, but he, the whole so point of the show is trying like is I mean well, I understand the causality issue. I guess, but I mean, you know, it goes back to going to that circle of like free will and whether you have a choice. If you accept, you know, you've got someone like Olivia that at least right now in season one is like, well, if it already happened, it already happened, and fate is the most powerful force that there is. But you have, we know that you have a time machine and you can change things. So for Ramsey to like throw his hands up and be like. Oh, well, that's what happened because I already helped them. I, but see, I think, they don't know that yet. Like they're they, worshiping fate. But remember the first thing that completely throws like a wrench in Olivia's faith is the fact that Ramsey is saved because I don't think they believe in choice. And that's another thing that the show presents all along the way. Is mm-hmm. it fate or is it choice? And they constantly like balance between those two things. And again, allow you, oddly enough, to make the choice over which one it is. Right. I just think it is, you can de- you can certainly sit back if you're Ramsey and say, all I'm doing is already telling them what happened. However... The conversations he's having with Olivia and the Pallid Man is about when they should act. So, like, what action would upset the cycle and which action can they undertake to further their goals and not upset the cycle? Because what they're worried about is screwing up the circle that gets Ramsey back to them, right? 
1995. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't agree with his actions, but I will say this. The one thing that throws a huge kink in his arc in this particular place is he thinks Cole is dead. Absolutely. And that is the only other person that he cared about. And so now everything, again, just like Jones, at all costs, I will save my child. Yeah. Yeah. You know what else is funny? Um, not that what you were saying was funny, but I love <laughs> how hilarious. <laughs> I love how the show just like so casually just like eliminated aging in its characters because that was convenient for oh, them yeah. <laughs> so that they could get stuck. And it's like it's just like one injection, and then you just don't age ever. It's like why? Why do they not like make a bigger deal of it? That is like amazing science. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. It affects your molecules on a quantum level, blah, blah, blah. You don't need it. There you go. Um, <laughs> if only we could get our hands on that. If only we could get our hands Did on that. Did I miss something that allowed this serum to work on Ramsey? Yeah, I don't really know. I guess, like, because later, like, lots, lots of people go through time. Like, it also works on Cassie. So I guess she just, like, perfected it. They yeah. retcon. They explain that. They, they explain that later in season two, right? But we didn't see that on screen. Yeah, I think how she changed one. it or whatever. And you yeah. saw though, like uh, I mean, obviously he didn't he, get split up or whatever, but he is physically super affected by it, you know with his hands and his arms, and you see like the wrecked. injuries that he has has sustained. Just strictly from the splintering. Yeah. I love that we're having this like robust Ramsey conversation because I feel like we came down pretty hard on him in the last episode, or at least that's where. So this is great balancing it out because I do like, I do love the character he's and so I love that friendship. Yeah. And he's so yeah. like, they could, so, it's so interesting. They could have easily done this entire show like without Ramsey, you know, like they could have easily written around him. But the fact that they don't, the fact that they choose to include his perspective and have him have this this story of of his child and his war and his his complicated feelings for um, uh, Cole and and the way he interacts with Cassie and stuff. It's so it adds so much depth. Yeah, it makes it like three dimensional exactly. because most television shows would have just had Project Splinter versus the Army exactly. of the Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, and he would have not bad guy, and then he would have just been a bad guy. Right, but adding. Aware adding that there is a cost right. to the quote-unquote good guys winning is, I think, what elevates the show among, like above probably the path that most shows would go Exactly, down. yeah. Right? Um, he's also the only person that never pretends that his agenda has anything to do with but the one. Exactly, yeah. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's, like, Jones obscures her motives, but he is always clear about, like, why he's doing what he's doing. Which also is why that's that exchange in Brothers, when Ramsey says to Cole, but he's talking about Cassie, one versus seven billion, and Cole's like, yeah. you don't get to say that to me. Oh. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? Like, are you of all people? Like, so, yeah. you know, even though they do that, when all of a sudden it's convenient for him to then take that utilitarian point of view, another character calls him on it, mm-hmm. right? So, like, that's what... I love that, like... But they also it's not, call him on something that they're doing. So it's all, like, it's very, yeah. Yeah. So if we shift to um, 2015, and we've been on, like, I, again, we're going to be hard on Aaron Marker, I, I mean, in these episodes, but let's all just acknowledge he cooks. And, <laughs> yeah, like, that's a good boyfriend. And If um, the world were not ending, Aaron would be, like, super, you know... 
good husband material. But <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like he's cooking. Um, I love. I mean, the whole like very kind of understated comedic like. Aaron and Cassie are about to like, you know, have sex on the counter or the table. And then that's when Cole splinters in. It's just like, <laughs> oh man, it's like the worst and yet best timing. It's their date <laughs> <Cole>. night meal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we have our like, you know, again, recurring segment of Cole enjoying new food and drink. And the person who ends up eating that meal that Aaron prepares is Cole. And I think it was pasta, right? He's enjoying pasta and wine. Um, but, you know, that, that, um, Cassie and Cole are kind of, I think, interestingly at odds, it, but it's a little, it's, it, it's all like a little, it's all under the surface. Um, it, it comes up a little bit um, when we get to the bar scene, but, you know, it, they, they see each other and it's you're alive and so are you. And they have both just come from different experiences dealing with the other one dying. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have Cassie th- going to Chechnya and she thinks that Cole died in the bombs dropping. And obviously we just came out of the last episode with Cassie dying at the CDC in Cole's arms. So for Cole, the mission, like his perspective in that moment and in this episode is the mission never stopped for him. So he was never under the impression that they stopped the plague. If anything, it's increased in urgency because he's just had to live through watching the world die and the chaos of being in the midst of the plague. But also his personal stakes have been upped because he just had to live through Cassie dying. And it was an emotionally intimate moment for him with Cassie telling him a lot has happened between you and me. And it's, it's just a more intimate scene or, or an intimate moment between the two of them, even though Cole kind of didn't know exactly what was going on. And then he is like shoved back into a reality where that has not happened for Cassie yet. Um, and so on the other hand, you have Cassie who thought that they did it. Right. Like she thought mission accomplished. She thought they saved the world. Maybe she's missing a little bit like with the discussion at the beginning, she and Aaron are missing a little bit of like the adrenaline rush. Um, And so they're like looking into like skydiving or like rock climbing. But she saw that Cole died. She knew that it was ultimately like for a good cause that it saved the world and she was ready to move on with her life. And then he comes back and with the news that no matter what, all of the things that they have done, it didn't work. And so it's like this really interesting, like kind of crashing together that this is the first time that it feels like uh, they're not on the same page. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's definitely heading into them definitely not being on the same page in the future. Um, But, you know, Aaron's line to Cole how many times does she have to die before you figure your shit out? It was like, oh man, <laughs> that was the be- that was the worst possible thing you could have said to the Cole that just came from that scene at the CDC, right? Like, mm. so but, um, go ahead. I was gonna say, like, you know, like what is really interesting about this show in terms of them like watching each other die, and especially like Cassie sort of slowly tracking over the course of the show her coming to view Cole especially but the people she loves as an unacceptable loss like I think in a, in a lot of ways the show really is about these individuals and at what point they like you said like choose the one over the many and the journey that they take to get there and I think that's it's so interesting to look at Cassie in this episode to have to say well Cole as much as she already cares about him he was an acceptable loss when the cost was the world and then track her to the end when he's not 
you know, mm-hmm. or he is yeah. maybe. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But, but it's, it's so interesting. And, and to watch Cole as well, who's going on this journey as well of coming to see Cassie more and more sort of consciously as an unacceptable loss. Whereas at the beginning of the show, obviously she had to die in his, from his perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Or I guess she didn't. I <laughs> time. Oh my gosh! But he didn't write. Yeah, it wasn't personal. You know what I mean. So it's like it is mm-hmm. so interesting to watch all of these people have the one person that they are not willing to sacrifice the world for. Right. And not only that, that they all, you know, obviously they have this big picture, noble goal of trying to save the seven billion that died in the plague. But the story of the show overall, when you get to the end of series, like the season four, it just, what is hitting them in the gut are like the personal losses of the people that have come to mean something to them along the way. So whether that's Deacon and then they realize like, it's almost like they're like, when you think about the end of Demons and the machine being destroyed in the moment there, the biggest gut punch is that Deacon has died, right? Like, it's not even, like, the first emotional gut punch is that he's dead. It's not that, like, all hope is lost because the machine that the primaries made has been destroyed, right? Like, their first concern is getting back to try and save Deacon. So it is sort of like this interesting story of having, you know, in the midst of this struggle to try and save the many, what is happening to all of them is all of these individual people are like coming yeah, to they're mean the world to them. Important to more important than the world or literally the world to each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is good so, television storytelling. Like that is ultimately what all television shows should be about. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's also the audience going on the journey with with those characters and why those characters mean so much to us at the end. Right. Yeah. It's not yeah. just it's not just that we love those characters, but it's, it's what those characters mm. right. Which they lean into so much with all of them in in season four and you feel that. Mm-hmm. Like you've gone on that journey, but they also say it out loud. Yeah. Um oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> ah, um, I loved this scene in the car between Cassie and Cole because it's so it's like heavy with all of the things that they're purposefully not saying, right? They like bring up four different things that they should tell each other, (laughs) whether it's like Cassie going back for Cole in Chechnya or Cole was with Cassie when she died or the conflict with Ramsey and they, or Cassie noticing that Cole is coughing and doesn't seem to be doing so well. They keep bringing things up and like not answering each other's questions. (laughs) And so that at the end, you're like, God, neither of you have told the other what you actually need to tell each other because you're both of you are avoiding (laughs) like getting into it. Um, when they go to the lab and find um, that Oliver Peters' husband has been killed and we have another historic plague um, reference that we – the explanation is the reason why he – the pallet man leaves those flowers is that was a tradition from ple- like medieval plague times to mask that smell of death. Um the literary reference that I thought was really interesting and like the more and more I think about it, even though I haven't read it in a really long time, I don't know if either of you have, um, Oliver Peters hides his notes about how he develops the virus in a copy of Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. Um, have either of you guys read it? I have not. Selena, have you no, read it? No, I have not. 
So this is like, man, we should like, I wish I we could like. I just assume that's why he hid it in there. <laughs> I wish we, I wish this is like when we could like, we could, uh, that's funny because it is, it is it the one. Is. <laughs> it is the one assignment I had in college where my English professor's like, so I'm not going to make you read the whole thing. <laughs> it's the only book where he's like, you can read he, read these excerpts. Um, but so I wish we could like phone a friend and call up Aaron and be like, can you weigh in on this? So I'm, I'm going to do the best I can. But this was like uh, basically 20 years ago that I read this book. But um, the, the the Remembrance of Things Past is actually the English translation. Translation, I think the more the better translation from the French is In Search of Lost Time. And it's Ooh. a really influential book just in terms of the way the narrative, it, the way it's written, because you kind of, instead of following sort of like an omniscient um, point of view or like first, you go on basically like the classic scene from the book is that the protagonist bites into a Madeleine, like the French kind of cookie cake pastry. And that sensory experience triggers all of these memories and you as the reader then go down that rabbit hole with the protagonist and so the book is written almost the way your brain will go down a rabbit hole where you smell something or taste something and it makes you think of this memory which then makes you think of the next thing and then makes you think of the next thing which is not how books were for the most part like written up into that point um and i'm just trying to remember (laughs) from my like college class But what I think is interesting about that is in this, in 12 Monkeys, with the red tea, you have a sensory experience of drinking something. And then even though the the body is not physically traveling through time, the tea drinker's consciousness is. So whether it's Jennifer drinking the tea or Cassie drinking the tea and seeing these visions, or it made me particularly think of Cole in the season two finale when he drinks the tea and then he's walking through his, he's traveling time, but through, traveling through time, but through his own memories, um, where we get that great, like he's walking through the corridor and he's going back to the scene in the pilot where he's in the car with Cassie or he's going back to when he met Jennifer at the hospital and he's traveling, his consciousness is traveling through time, but it was through drinking the tea. Um, it just basically sent me down a rabbit hole of being like, oh my gosh, thinking about all the parallels um, between Remembrance of Things Past um, and the show. So kind of the idea of consciousness traveling through time as another, you know, that ends up being another form of tra- of time travel on the show, right? We have like the physical time machine that can transport you back, or we have the T that can transport your mind and not your body um, back through time. So that was like the fun rabbit hole that that one line of picking up the book (laughs) sent me down. Which is funny because I'm really, I'm sure that it's both. Like, you're absolutely right. I know that they don't do anything, you know, without having a purpose and that title and everything you just went into makes like a million times sense. But mechanically, like he did it because he knew nobody would pick that book up. (laughs) (laughs) You really think that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're not going to hide your plague notes in a book called, like, My Plague Notes. (laughs) (laughs) He was basically like, nobody wants to read. Not even even college English professors make their students read that whole book. So I'm going to hide it in there. Exactly. (laughs) That's funny. Okay, so this takes us to the bar scene. Yes. Yeah, so I love this scene because I feel like this scene is the perfect, like, setup precursor 
for the Cassie and Cole that we are going to come to know in season two. So they're obviously still have a common purpose of tracking down what's going on with the plague, but you have Cole kind of excited and like positive and emotionally checking in like what's going on with you why are you throwing back the scotch like i don't think that's helping and you have a cassie who is clearly struggling with this it feels like the plague is inevitable and the cost to her and constantly being sent on these like okay yeah i'll go track down this next thing and oh good for us we figured that out and she's seeing what's happening to cole physically and he's not being honest about it and she just went through the process of losing him and now he's back but he's clearly like his body's falling apart um and so there's a lot like of conflict and things that are kind of unsaid even though you can kind of I think the way Amanda Shul always plays it is like she says something that kind of lands sometimes harshly, but then you can see sort of the emotion um, and sometimes regret after she said it. Um, so it's just kind of interesting the way that scene plays out, thinking about where they're going in season two. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a fun. I think she has two options at this point, or not even options, but there are two outcomes at this point. Either they continue to fail, so she's developing a sense of hopelessness, or he gets a race, like you know, like he's always said he would, and mm-hmm. she does care about him. So either way, there's a hopelessness, and she's just like, "Fuck it, let's get on with it." I guess, like whatever. Yeah, I mean, I love that. Again, I feel like on a lesser show. You would have had Cole come back, Cassie run up and be like, you're alive. And then they would like continue on the mission, right? Right. Yeah. No, that, and yeah, that was a terrible thing to happen, especially and, like you said, when she already had to grieve his death. Like she's been here, been there, done that. Right. And it's blowing her life up again. Yep. You know, she's like, you're bad. And he's like, well, I'm not thrilled to be back either. Right. Like, so, you know, I, I think if I were Cassie, I would have stayed at that bar and knocked back a few and <laughs> probably got home and been hung over too, right? It was just a very human, like, she's happy he's alive, but it also means they failed. Yep. And emotionally, you'd be all over the place, right? Like, yeah. they let her be like that. And it's always been her life that's been disrupted, you know, because his life sucked, period. Like, he's the one that's having, you know, he's trying to save the world from his future. But now at this point in the story, she still doesn't understand what that even means. She just knows that, like, she's going to lose her present, but she's already losing her present. Like, yeah, the whole world's about to die, but, like, my life is fucked no matter what I do. Right. And the beginning of the episode, she was like, you know, drinking wine and planning a skydiving trip and her boyfriend was cooking her dinner. And now she's back to square one with the world ending. Yep. Like, so, yeah, she's going to knock back a few scotches. So here's some, <laughs> like, here's yeah. some fate choice again stuff, too, though, because, like, does it matter what we do or are we just going in circles? And to some degree, they do that the entire series. Yeah. And they are. <laughs> right. I mean, with Cassie's, we're just going around her, her feeling of maybe this is inevitable it goes all the way to season four when she's like, we're stuck in a loop and yep. we can't get out of it. Yeah. Um, another fun little um, kind of like thematic Easter egg. I think it's hilarious. I guess Cole remembers how to work a jukebox from like when he was a kid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he chooses a rather older song. So maybe it was one of Matthew Cole's favorites along with his country um, that he had on his mixtape that was in his car. But he picks um, Blue Oyster Clubs. The name of the song is Don't Fear the Reaper. 
Um, and at first I was like, where do I know this song from? And I realized it's from, I mean, I knew it because my parents are baby boomers and so they play the music, but, but the real reason why I recognize it is because it is the song from that more cowbell skit from Saturday Night Live. Oh my God. <laughs> with Christopher Walken and Will Ferrell, you know, like with his belly hanging out, like ringing the cor- cowbell. So but I started to like listen, um, as and I think it's also because when I watch this on Amazon Prime, Amazon Prime has that thing where it tells you the actors in the scene and what else they've done, and also the song that's playing. Probably because they want me to go buy it, but haha, Amazon! What it's actually going to make me do is go down like a geek rabbit hole. And so the song has lyrics about. 40,000 people die a day, which was the writer of the song's estimate of how many people die a day. And Romeo and Juliet are together in eternity. And so I went and I looked up sort of the writer of the song. Apparently, it was like actually a controversial song because people interpreted it to mean like a suicide pact between two lovers, um, especially with the Romeo and Juliet reference. But the writer of the song said what it actually is about, what, what he intended it to be about, is to not be afraid of death. Um, that death is inevitable, but that love can transcend physical death. And that's why he references Romeo and Juliet are together in eternity. But love remains. Right? Mm -hmm. Love cannot be undone. So I thought that's really interesting thematically, because on the one hand, it made me think of Cole telling Cassie in the finale, like, don't be afraid of an ending. (laughs) An ending, you know, and ultimately for all of us, it means death (laughs) but that that it's it is inevitable but don't be afraid of it um and then also what cassie says to cole through the recording that love cannot be undone yeah so that's just a fun yeah Yeah. thanks amazon i didn't buy the song (laughs) but it made me go (laughs) it made me go look it up you know i i just i think this show has some incredibly surprising musical moments you know like this was one of the songs that i just i don't know i just was not expecting like there's a level of known songs that you just don't expect to show up you know because you know how expensive it is to get those songs Mm -hmm. and it's like this Mm -hmm. one and um obviously don't you forget about me and there's like a couple of others along the way that you're just like oh my god they got that song (laughs) well we did find out though from when terry metallis appeared he said that that don't you forget about me was free because Mm -hmm. universal owns it oh well there you go But yeah, there are, or or it takes songs that you have you've always known, like that are like from Dirty right. Dancing, and they think about it in a totally new yeah. way, which runs the risk of like you know picking a song like that that is so iconic but associated specifically with like another film property is kind of like a risky proposition, right? Um, but they're just able to now like I'm never going to hear that song and not think of like Ramsey and Cole. <laughs> In the car, right? Right, yeah. And the fact that nothing was playing when they filmed it. I just can't get it. <laughs> right. That part gets stuck in my mind. Um, there's some great Easter eggs in this scene that I just want to make sure we mention. Um, in Oliver Peter's notes, we see the the um the quote unquote the meat, um, the corpse that the virus comes from. And it's setting up, you know, Cassie and Cole figuring out, but what we're gonna see is in the next episode Shonen, that's what's for sale and Leland Goins is buying. Um, but also now, you know, when they're talking about it being discovered in the Himalayas, uh, my mind can't help but go to, you know, the flashcard going up to what is it, eight eight hundred and ninety-four and Olivia's body, like in the Himalayas. Um and then also, 
we um, it's Cole and Cassie putting together all of the clues that have been kind of laid along the way. So Leland Goines mentioning um, the White Dragon and Tokyo in 1987 in the pilot. Um, Wexler mentioning that when he and Cole were in um, the same room together in Chechnya and other all of those clues that have been sewn along the way leading up to what we're going to see in the episode in Shonen when Cole and Ramsey face off. Um, and also what is going to foreshadowing what we're going to see in Shonen and kind of the thread that runs through when Cassie was drinking the tea. I get, I guess because of the tea that she drank in the, in the episode, The Red Forest, when she's in the bar and after Cole splitters away, she looks at the plant and the leaves turn from green to red. So I guess like I have forgotten that, that even before Cassie has to drink the tea again in season two, she's still continuing to hallucinate things um, and have kind of the lasting effects from the first time. Hmm. And even Jennifer makes the comment about the tea, like, and it only works when it's red. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, We have the Cassie and Oliver Peters scene. And I, that scene to me is a big now on, I, I don't know if it quite landed now when I watch it, it's such a turning point, I think. The Cassie of the pilot mm-hmm. never would have never would have hesitated as long as she did mulling over whether she should kill yeah. Oliver Peters. Yeah. And you see the struggle on her like you see it all play out on her face, right? Like I think there's a moment where she's actually gonna do it. <laughs> and oh, then for you, sure. Yeah. Um and it's just I think it's just a really big character moment of this like darker turn that Cassie's going to take, particularly in season two of being willing to do what it takes. And here is a moment um, where you really see that playing out and she's still struggling with it, but it is a marked shift um, from the Cassie that we first met. You know, I was going to say earlier, I really love how Amanda Scholl plays Cassie. Like I think she does an astonishing job. Like I think is one again one of the ways that Twelve Monkeys kind of subverts the idea of what like one specific quote unquote archetype should be, mm-hmm. and Cassie is that character that could so easily have been, you know, yeah, a good like female lead does what she can to save the world and struggles morally along the way, but ultimately does the right thing, and we're always on her side, and that's just not the character, and that's just not the version of her that Amanda Scholl plays. I think there is so much, and she has that, the same as Jones, really, like the same, that she is not obliged to be likable, you know, that it is not a a requirement for her, just because she's a main female character, that you have to make sure the audience is always with her, you know, I think mm-hmm. that is great. And I think that that it is so like that moment is such a good example of it because, yeah, she was going to kill that guy. And it was because vengeance, basically, you know, like it was he he because of what he'd done, because of what she felt like she had lost because of it. And I think every it, all the viciousness and all the vulnerability and all of the the strength and the um, the ruthlessness and all of that is just wonderful. Yeah. And, and it's also th- the idea that she's she's kind of adopting Cole's mentality or at least what his original oh one, yeah yeah they're like, like swapping yeah. pieces yeah. have to like nip this in the bud and whatever that costs you know and yeah just shoot him because this is now the third time that Oliver Peters has popped up and it's like mm-hmm. no matter what we're doing to this guy he still comes around and causes this later and later and later you know so it's just like god do we just eliminate mm-hmm. him and say right. mm-hmm. forget and she- it 
and she's not quite there yet, right? Like if you were going to compare, if you're going to contrast this to when Cole is staring down Henri in the alley in Haiti, and he makes the choice to shoot Henri, right? Um, because even though this person doesn't like want to contribute to the plague, um, if he continues to live, the 12 monkeys will find a way to force him to do that, right? And for them, it was to tell him where the night room is here. Peters obviously doesn't want to be creating the plague. He did it here under duress. Um, But you have Cassie kind of facing that that same choice, like – is it? Am I willing to kill this person, mm-hmm. even though it's collateral damage? And because those seven billion lines hang in the in the balance, she, she is going to come to a very different conclusion when they're on that rooftop with Jennifer in the season two premiere. Right. Right? Is he collateral Judging damage him. though? Because he, I mean, he created it to begin with when they first shot Lila and we met him at the party. He created it for Chechnya. He's now right. He is more and more. Yeah. Time. I was going to say. I so think that- I mean, I'm not saying he's like liable. No, he's se, not the same. Right. He's it's a, a diff- huge problem. Problem. I think that yeah, I, what is really interesting is Cassie is like I feel like she is judging him here for being weak because he sacrificed the world again for the one right that that's mm. what she's doing that's what's guiding her like not just like being willing to sacrifice him but actively being angry with him you know wanting to punish him for what she sees as weakness I think. Mm-hmm. But see, I think in contrast to what Cole did with Henri, and it's interesting that you brought that up, Cece, I think when he kind of hesitated to shoot, he was trying to find a way to, like, talk himself out of it. You know, in his own mind, he was like, God, like, do I have to do this? I really, like, want to find a reason not to. Mm-hmm. And I think that with Cassie, it's the exact opposite. I think as much as she might want to, like, emotionally, I think she was trying to talk herself into killing him. Mm, mm. Yeah, because of that's it's you know it's interesting about Cassie and Cole is that I always feel like cat like Cole is sort of more open about his emotion, but Cass mm-hmm. like in touch with his emotion, whereas Cassie I feel like is is more like trapped by her emotion. You mm-hmm. know, she's not like she's even though Cole is the one who allows himself to feel you know, Cassie is trying to repress what she feels through so much of the show. Cassie is ultimately the one who can't sometimes look past her emotion, whether that's love or anger or or, or hate or a judgment, you know? And I find mm-hmm. that just like the, the comparison between the two of them and how they, like you said, like kind of swap places uh, over the course of the show and swap back again and swap back again again. <laughs> Right, like they morally go round and around, but it is an interesting gender flip. Yeah, right. To have the man be the one who's more emotionally open, and the woman be the one that's most more emotionally closed off until it reaches a tipping point and it explodes. Right, which is usually for good or for bad. Like, like yeah, he's he's reasonable, and then something sets him off, and rah, you know, yeah. Right, which well, is interesting. She feels very, very deeply, but it's like you said, because she's repressing that, mm-hmm. every emotion that she has all rolls into like one big ball. Right. So she doesn't even know what is anger, what is love, what is, you know, this frustration, what is driving me. I just know, like, I feel a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's always Cole trying to be like, let's talk about it. <laughs> you know, like whether it's in season two during Lullaby, um, 
or like, you know, even at the end of the series where she's, you know, he's trying to talk her through her emotions and trying to get her to a place where she can stop the countdown. Yeah. Um, it, it is just a really fascinating, I don't even know if they were consciously doing it, but it is the reverse of what we normally see on TV, where it's the man who plays the one that's closed off, but the river runs deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and the woman who's always bringing up feelings and trying to talk about it. I mean, it plays out in this episode, right? Like at the bar, Cole keeps trying to be like, what's going on? with you and she's not going to give right and we're going to see it like in the season finale for season one after Aaron dies um, Cole's trying to talk to her about it and Cassie just shuts it down like she's Mm -hmm. not going to talk about it so yeah it's a really good observation Um, just Easter egg in that conversation with Oliver Peters it is our first mention of the messengers Um, he mentions the messengers which they're going to be we're going to see them both in baby form and adult form (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> by the end of of this season when they break into the facility. And of course, they're going to be our big countervailing force um, throughout season two. Um, what is going on outside is that Olivia is finding Aaron um, among the shipment containers. And we find out in Shonen, it's because Ramsey knew they were going to be there and Ramsey's waiting in the car. Um, but that's where Olivia first poses this moral dilemma to Aaron. Um, what are you willing to do to keep her alive? Um, and that very simple question is kind of the thread that runs through not only these episodes we're talking about today, but like, as we mentioned before, sort of the whole series, like, what are people willing to do to keep the people they love alive? And I think the answer is a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. To sum up. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, One so other that- point to that scene, uh, and that I had forgotten this. I mm-hmm. forgot that when Cassie confronted Oliver Peters, you know, in the shipping container, that Cole was not there. And I, I just wanted to mention that I appreciated that because I feel like this is the first time that Cassie has been confronted with this degree of situation that relates so closely to the mission on her own. Mm-hmm. And she was forced to make her own choices. Right. It's kind of her character coming into her own. She's no longer just the, she's researching things in the present, right? Like, right. but she's actually now actively having to like confront people and take action on her own. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. Just shifting back to the 2043 plot, we have a lot of really, I think, interesting conversations between Jones and Whitley. Um where Jones is still very much, I mean, and shouldn't surprise us, it seems like she's starting to think a little bit about what she did at Project Spearhead, but she's definitely still in the ends justify the means um, frame of mind. And so when, you know, wanting to not harm Ramsey, when she says that, at least my read on it from her dialogue was basically just because they, what she says is we need to, we need to ensure Cole's continued cooperation. Um, and what I think is interesting is when you think about Jones at the end of the last time that Cole splinters away from 2043, basically for the season, um, she, when she talks to Adler later, she thinks that that's basically the last time she's ever going to see Cole, right? So she just wants to ensure Cole's cooperation because she knows she needs to see him in 2015, <laughs> right? Like for her past. I'm just trying to like figure out like she thinks Cole's only going to be cooperating as part of their mission for only a little bit longer, right? Am I thinking that about that the right way? Uh, 
I don't know. What do you mean? Like, because they're going to, it's going to be complete or? Well, when she tells at the, I think it's at the beginning as Shonen, when Adler is freaking out about whether Cole made it to 2015. Mm -hmm. um, And Jones is like, I know that he did, but he's also not, I think she basically is like, he's not coming back. Like we've been abandoned. And that's the first time we are confronted with a Jones who doesn't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah, like, right. right. Because up until this, uh, up until like, including this episode, when she's treating Cole, when she's talking to Whitley about you need to do what it takes to ensure that Cole continues to cooperate. It's because she's trying to preserve that causality loop that gets her to meeting Cole in 2015. And it isn't until he splinters away and he is then slingshotted to 2015. From that point on, that Jones, it's the first time we have a Jones that is in the dark. Yep. Um, oh right, yeah, and they do right? say that his cycle ends in the past, right? Like in nineteen eighty, whatever. So like, if she doesn't necessarily know that he's still going to be around, but, but then again, she didn't know about that. Never mind. I'll take it back. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because like when she's saying we need to, I, I guess it struck me because I I used to think when I watched that scene when she's like we have to make sure Cole continues to cooperate. I, I used to think it was because you know Cole, she and Cole are partners in this mission. And then when I watched it back to back with that scene when she's talking with Adler and she's kind of at sea for the first time because now she doesn't know what happens, right? Like she knows Cole gets to 2015. She knows that she meets him. She knows that his tether's broken and that he can't get back to the past. I mean, to the future. So she has no reason to think she's ever going to see Cole again. So when she's trying to get Whitley, at least as I was trying to think about it here, I'm like, man, she's trying to make sure that Cole, quote unquote, continues to cooperate because she needs to preserve that causality loop where she meets him in 2015, because that's when Cassie tells her about the recording. Um, And that's how she knows to look for the recording. And then this is how she knows to find Cole. Right. Like that whole loop. So I just thought it was like interesting thinking about. So always interesting going back and watching these scenes with Jones now that we know what Jones knows, <laughs> as opposed to the first time when you were watching and you never and you didn't know that Jones had met Cole in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have like a very, you know, Whitley has obviously like a lot of reservations. Um, and I think like sort of the irony to this is that they do keep they do keep their promise to Cole. Ramsey is unharmed. <laughs> but what what does happen is that Elena is killed. Well, Ramsey is physically unharmed. Physically unharmed. Right. Um, and it is kind of a gut punch when Cole says, like, the last thing I want to be responsible for, like, my last time here is getting Ramsey killed. And when you just, you're like, oh, man. <laughs> when you, like, think forward mm-hmm. to, like, what their arc, their friendship arc is going to be. Um, so this is the episode. And I actually, I'll be honest, I forgot how this all originally went down. This is the episode where we meet old Jennifer. Um, one of yeah. the like most original, I think, characters. <laughs> We've seen her before, right? Like we were aware that she was there, or no? No, I think we'd heard we'd heard um we'd heard about the, the daughters, daughters oh, from right, Deacon, right? Yes, and we see, and so it's kind of like this slow reveal. We'd heard about the daughters from Deacon. We had heard um in the last episode we had seen Jennifer in 2017 talking to some women and a girl in the crowd and talking about daughters. Mm-hmm. Then we see the wagon with the with the demon with the monkey on it, and and the person tells the 
uh, one of the other people in the camp tells Ramsey, those are the daughters. We hear they blame the men for the apocalypse. Um, which He's like, you can't blame them. I know. It's such a great line. <laughs> like, yep. Although, although, you know, it is funny now that you know the witness is a woman and a woman was the one who dropped the vial. <laughs> but um, yeah, I probably would have shared that sentiment as well. Um, but no, this is the first time that like dramatic Jennifer walking down the steps and the hat half covering her face. This is the first time we meet her. And I had forgotten that Ramsey is the first person in the show who meets old Jennifer and he's mm-hmm. never met the young Jennifer, I right? Like his, yeah, his first meeting with Jennifer is the old Jennifer, which is crazy. Is he the, I guess he, are he and Deacon the fir- the only people who meet old Jennifer first as opposed to meeting her when she's young? Oh. Yeah, probably. What about uh, Jones? Yes, yeah, and Jones, right? Yeah. Because she meets her in... Yeah, she makes yes. her as an old. In lullaby. <laughs> an yeah, old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As old, yeah. Um, so there's some interesting, like, mythology building and some interesting lines. But this scene in particular on rewatch is one of those where you realize there's so much – what what sounded sometimes like – like, I was going to say fortune cookie, like the paper and a fortune cookie, which Jennifer actually uses later on when she's trying to lead the daughters. But what sounds like these very vague, I don't really know what that means. It could have a lot of meanings. On rewatch, you realize Jennifer, as all of the primaries, are telling us so much. We just don't know what to listen for. I also love that the reason we even know it's her before we see her face is the first thing out of her mouth is 12's not primary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's so obsessed with that. <laughs> um, so she mentions that she, you know, her her herbs, the, that the leaves have to be red and that they allow for pictures um, when you drink them. She has that great line that, like, makes your head hurt. Daughters of mothers, fathers, it's all out of order, which it is <laughs> on this show when you think about, like, Cole saving child mm-hmm. Hannah or um, – Ethan is older than Cole, or the crazy loop of Olivia is Mantis's daughter, but she's with Mantis as a baby. Like, all of the mothers and sons and daughters and fathers, all of them out of order. It's, like, such a great – there's so much to unpack from, like, that one line. Um, But we also get our first clue that old – this, you know, we should know, but old Jennifer – Ramsey realizes old Jennifer knows Cole. Um, and that she's, she says things like what Cole has done, Cole, the eyes that see. And we've mentioned earlier on, um, on another podcast that the only two people that Jennifer ever mentions the eyes are Olivia and Cole. The two gens, um, are the only two people where somebody whose primary is focused on their eyes being different from other people's eyes. And then she gives the po- – and I also have – did you guys remember this whole plot point with the necklace? That yeah. it's the necklace she grabs from the night room? I had totally forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Which is also like a divine move, I think, referring to mm-hmm. the title oh, that she yes. literally puts it in his hand. Oh, my gosh. That's so right. It's uh, interesting to think about in this time, too, because we had the conversation a little bit earlier about how, you know – Ramsey, while he was actively helping them keep the timeline intact, Jennifer does nothing to him now, even though she knows what he's about to go do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But that's because she sees it all, you know? So it's like, it's really interesting. Like, she's actually, more than anyone else, Jennifer is the one who's making sure that everything happens as it did, which again is really interesting. Mm-hmm. 
because knowing what she knows, like she's one step ahead. She's kind of like the 12 monkeys, except she's one step ahead of them, literally. Right. right. Although it makes my, this Jennifer doesn't know, as she says, there's no straight line. No, no, that's true. She doesn't know. That's true, actually. So she's literally, but then she is kind of like the 12 monkeys, though, isn't she? Like she's working with the same and, and Ramsey, like trying to preserve time as it is. Not Ramsey, mm-hmm. he doesn't know as much. Right. I have a question, though. And and I think there's probably a lot of layers to that. But when she says to him, um, you're a good friend, mm-hmm. you know, but not, not yet, yet, but you will be. Mm-hmm. What do you mm. think she's referring to? Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought it was herself. And I kept waiting for this, like, epic Ramsey and Jennifer friendship that never came. Aww. <laughs> it might be to Cole. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I assumed that it meant to Cole. Well, of and, course, yeah. Just- yeah. And At I what did, point? Right. And so I guess the, with this watch, I'm like, this this can't be a Jennifer that knows that he's ultimately going to come back. No, she doesn't And help know. them win the day. But she, this Jennifer does know that Ramsey, even though Ram, she knows what's going to happen on this day. She says that. Today is something, you know, today something happens that will change things for you. Not everything's preordained. They say things happen for a reason, and that is a lie. So this Jennifer, this Jennifer knows, obviously, because she's giving him the necklace. She knows he's about to betray Project Splinter. She mm-hmm. knows he's about to go back to Army of 12 Monkeys. But this Jennifer must also know that Ramsey is going to come back and once again help Cole. Well, right? But like would, that's a, right? Because she's seen, she'd ha- she experienced him, like, when they went, like, she was. She and Ramsey actually did spend a good chunk of time together when they all went to like Titan. take down the city, city of light. Oops, <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, Titan, the red city, yeah. Titan. That's one. Yeah, um, they like because they so they did. Even though we didn't see it, maybe they were friends. <laughs> I'm gonna pretend well, like they were. She, yeah, I mean, she knows. It's interesting, like because she knows a lot of the ups and downs in that relationship, right? Because old Jennifer is going to come back. Wait, it hasn't happened. Wait, it's making my brain hurt. Well, she Old Jennifer gets that- brought in in the middle of the insurrection at Project Splinter when Cassie and Ramsey are trying to take it over, right? Yeah, but ab- like before that, she's been on this huge journey with Ramsey and Deacon and stuff. Yeah. Like they all went on that journey together when Cassie and Cole went back in time. But that, that, that's not this Jennifer yet, is it? Well, time doesn't run in a straight line, you know. <laughs> uh, right. I, yeah, basically, we just take that line, no straight lines, and just hold on to it for dear life. <laughs> because <laughs> yes. trying to figure out on rewatch which, what old Jennifer knows what. Right. Yeah. Particularly taking to account, like, we're, I mean, the one thing is we're seeing this pre nosebleed. So it's not the one that knows that she's going to give Deacon the knife and all of that. But even taking that Jennifer before that, what she knows and when. It makes my head hurt. <laughs> but but it is like a great, you know, there's there's something that's that's both true and untrue about saying that Ramsey hasn't been a good friend to Cole yet, right? Because obviously he has been their whole lives. Like he helped raise Cole. Um, but at that moment, it is foreshadowing that he it, there's about to be like a serious betrayal and they're going to be at odds. Um, but it's I guess also- he does kind of, I mean, he's not that he's like, actively participating as far as like with Cole, but it's a pretty good friend move to stand idly by as they burn the plague, you know, the or the virus in front of you. Later on. Yeah, yeah. he does that in early season two. You know, he just stands there and lets him do it. And he helps him, even though it's co- contrary to his own interests in saving his son. 
Right. right. Like, he helps Cole. He is, however, going to stab him in the next episode. So Meh. it's definitely a journey. <laughs> that's why not yet. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Right. Um, so that's obviously, that's our first, um, you know, we're going to end this episode um, before we head to Shonen. We're going to end up with Ramsey and Cole both splintering away from Project Splinter. And it will be a while before they're back. Right. It won't be until the second episode of season two. Um, that both of them are back there. And and we also we haven't talked about her a lot, but we should pour one out for Max. Um, Ramsey oh, accidentally kills her. Uh, lost uh, potential there. I, I know. This is, this is actually she was so is great. The, like, Max is the biggest loss, in my opinion. Of, Max like, is Someone like, that I somehow loved, like, the minute she came on screen, and she mm-hmm. was so underutilized, and I would have loved to have seen that character develop. Max is kind of, to me, like, not to make, uh, the hundred reference, but to make it the hundred reference, Max is kind of like the Harper of the show, except that they never did anything with her. Mm. You know, like she was there, she was in the background, she was badass, she was included in missions, she was talking to main character, and then oh, she died. Like mm-hmm. you know, there was. Yeah. I feel like this episode. I was actually like a little bit sort of like I li- I really enjoyed these episodes, but this is like the one episode along with Jones killing um the the guy with the name I can't Foster. remember. Yeah, Foster. Um, that really, like, genuinely, like, make me mad because I think it, like, losing two female characters, ma- ma- minor as they were, in such a like throwaway fashion, I really don't enjoy that when yeah. shows do that. And I really don't like. I think it's like fair enough to say that you can still enjoy a show and really, really love what it's doing, like on a macro level, but still look at some of the smaller things, like this one. I just, I was like, really, you know, you literally like. Elena had no purpose. She was literally just like a, a child bringing this child who was also a plot element, you know, like a motivator for Ramsey into the story and then dying. And then Max was maybe at one point would have been a bigger character, but for whatever reason, it just never became anything. And they just like got rid of her. And I thought yeah, that was she a, had a shame. A, yeah, she had a lot of potential. I was yeah. so... In fact, I mean, here's here's a sign... It was so long between I had be, the time between I had watching season one and then watching the season four finale. Um, I had totally forgot like when she walks in with old Jennifer to save the day at mm-hmm. the end of season four. I'll be honest that I'm like, wait a minute, I have who's that reaction? I was like, who's that? that? And then and then I realized like late like then I realized later like oh yeah but like at first I was like wait I know <laughs> yes. that I'm supposed to know that person but I didn't which no you know she was so inconsequential like they never let her take up space in the story and I thought that was like obviously there there isn't space for everyone I get that but I just she felt like she was like a clue being dropped for something that never happened mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, she, yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, frankly, it's like a high body count between like Foster, in in terms of, I mean, there's a high body count to begin the show, Mm. 7 billion people (laughs) died. But in terms of characters that had potential and then are suddenly ripped away from us, you've got Foster, which I just thought Xander Berkeley, like I could watch him all day. Oh my God, yeah. Right. And then um, you had Elena and it's like, I just wanted more. And then you have Max and you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, right. You lose both of them in the episode. Um. Yeah, and then we don't really afterthought, you know. Yeah, well, we don't we don't think about her again until the series finale, right? So when Whitley comes back, um, and I think it's Whitley goes on sort of an interesting journey. Like he's obviously so reluctant. Um, Then he 
kind of meters out an eye for an eye justice um, when he's at the camp, when Elena is killed by killing the person who is responsible for firing off his weapon. And then she comes back and I mean, he comes back and then there's this interesting when you think about Whitley and what he's just gone through of kind of reliving how he left his father to follow Jones, which he talks about um with i think he's he's just such a good actor it's like he's not in a lot of scenes but like whenever he is i'm just so focused on him when he's like so emotional telling jones like i believed in you and i left my father for you um and that might be i might be jumping ahead to the next episode i can't remember which which episode that scene is in but when he tells her i am not i'm not going after ramsey like there's Mm. a son who just lost his mother and that boy needs his father and it kind of hits you because this is somebody who's just lost his father. Yeah. Um, and Jones is clearly going through – she's starting to think about – and what I love is in this episode and the next episode, it allows Jones to have these, like, quiet conversations with Adler and with Whitley that give us insight into, like, what's going on in her head. And even though this is a Jones that is still very much in the ends justify the means, she's starting to think about the consequences like for her soul of what mm-hmm. these choices are. And so of she the means. of the means. And so when she says anything we do, even if we undo it, it happened nonetheless in God's eyes. And when Whitley questions like whether or not she believes in God, she says God's wrath doesn't require my belief. <laughs> and that's what she says earlier in the episode, which is such a gut punch. <laughs> I mean, right? It's like whether I believe in men or not, like whatever's gonna whatever the judgment's gonna be is gonna happen no matter what I believe, which is like just I love like such a great thought-provoking line. But at the end, when Whitley returns, he says, someone someday will judge us for what we've done, mm. which is so interesting to think in thinking about the very end of the series and time kind of letting one slide and letting Cole exist. It's this just kind of interesting is time is time what is ultimately judging these characters at the end. Um, and I just want to know if, if, if anyone listening hasn't watched the deleted scenes for season four, um, Whitley does get a happy ending. Um, it's, I'm sad that it wasn't in the series finale, but why did they cut that out? Oh my God. Like (laughs) this character, like, I know is never, is, is not allowed to exist as much as she should. And he doesn't, I know the interesting thing about Whitley is, he never really has a one. And I feel like in to some degree, he really is one of like the truly principled people. Like where Jones makes the argument at Spearhead, you know, like what is one person versus the whole of human history or whatever? Like what is saving these people with the uh, cure? Like when Whitley got that information, he truly believed like the cure was a dead end. And I feel like he believes the lie that Jones like knows that she's lying about. And because of that, like that's what pushes him. He Mm -hmm. really does want to save like humanity. Well, and to the extent that he, we know of his personal connections, he gave up his father. Right. Like, in, right. But, he but basically, no basically, he gives up his father twice. He gives up having a relationship with his father when he initially left project spearhead with Jones. And then he loses his father when they, when they take over Spearhead and his father are shot and died. Right. So he does give up. I mean, maybe he's not making like an active choice to, but he does sacrifice like the one, f- 
like his father, like the one person he has left in the world. If you haven't seen the deleted scene, I, at one point, and I forget where it was in the series, Whitley mentions that if the plague hadn't have happened, he wanted to be an architect. Oh. <laughs> so the deleted Whitley. scene is Whitley at an architectural firm like in business casual presenting like architectural plans and it just like makes my heart so happy. Oh. So know that he also <laughs> got that happy ending and if Yay. you want to see it, yeah, it's on the season 4 DVD. Still um, canon. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that takes us to Shonen. Um and I you guys will not be surprised that I went down rabbit holes figuring trying to figure out the um meaning behind the episode title. Um so I don't know if either of these are right but I thought both of them were interesting and I don't know if you guys also had thoughts about the episode title. But um the word shonen but spelled with one letter difference. So the episode title is S H O N I N. Um Shonen with an E instead of the I. The translation from the Japanese means a few years, um, which it could be kind of like a tongue-in-cheek. Ramsey spends 28 years um, in prison and with the army of 12 monkeys. And this episode fills us in on all of Ramsey's time that he is away from Project Splinter. Um, and there's also, there's a lot of, and, and we'll get to it later in the episode, but there's a lot of religious um, allusions in this episode. And perhaps um, another one is there is a figure in um, Buddhism who is Japanese um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Shinran Shonen, who lived in the 12th, um, 12th and early 13th century, um, who spent time in, tell me if this sounds familiar, given Ramsey's journey, seclusion and banishment in self-disciplined study seeking enlightenment. Um, and I think it's interesting that, Ram- I think that's kind of an interesting, whether it was intentional or not, um, Ramsey's obviously somebody who ends up secluded not only because he's a time traveler with no place, but he's also in physical seclusion because he's in prison. He ends up studying all of the texts um, and evolving, um, attaining some kind of enlightenment, at least in how to um, manipulate people's emotions um, and also probably like the most education he's had considering the plague. And then he is brought into the Army of Twelve Monkeys as someone who's quote unquote enlightened because he has knowledge of future events. So I thought it, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's just kind of a fun two different ways you could potentially think about the title of the episode. Did you guys have any other thoughts? No, no, that I all seems that completely good. unrelated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What'd you say? It all seems what? That's completely unrelated, all of it. You think it is? You think no. they just made... Oh. oh. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh, sometimes I go down these geek rabbit holes and I'm like, okay, Tina, pull it back. Pull it back. <laughs> um, the other thing that's really interesting to think about, sort of big picture with the structure of this episode... Um, And I think, you know, I don't, I think from what I understand from other interviews and reading, they didn't necessarily always know that the corpse was Olivia. I I think that that's right. Right. But now, now that it is canon that it, that Olivia is the corpse, we have an episode that on one end, you have the actual physical corpse in the club in Tokyo, and that is what is the the you know at the center of this transaction with Leland Goins and then Ramsey and Cole all showing up, right? But at the end, this is also an episode that we learn the striking woman's name 
because she signs the letter to Ramsey, Olivia. And the last scene we have with Olivia, one of the last scenes that we have with Olivia in this episode is her conversation with Jennifer, where she describes herself as that thing in a box. So it's just like this Ooh, amazing, yeah. right? Sure. Like she describes herself as a thing in a box when she was a child with her father, which we will actually see that play out in season two. But she physically is a thing in the box <laughs> um, in the club in 1987 Tokyo. It's so wild. I thought it yeah. was so true. So even if they didn't know it all, maybe that's why, like, it all works out amazingly. And on rewatch, you're just like, oh, my gosh, she's so many, yes. so many different ways. She's a thing in a box that's in this so episode. Cool. Who um, did you guys think it was? Not to sidetrack too much, but when you first yeah. saw it. I actually didn't give it much thought. Oh. <laughs> I think we talked about this last week a little bit, especially, like, in season one. We thought I, maybe it was Cole. Okay. Yeah, that was true. Yeah. We thought, but what I meant was that we spoke about was just. I didn't really expect the show to be on the level that it ended at. Oh, So right, I just right. really didn't think too much about it, like, if it mattered or not who it mm. was, you know? Because we don't – you're right. You almost – I mean, for two seasons or two and a half seasons, you kind of forget about the plague. Yeah. Right? Mm. So – and who especially dropped- when they're like, it was found in the Himalayas like thousands of years ago. Like you just don't, you know what I mean? It just didn't, I didn't connect that I even should be thinking about that. Like I, Yo, yeah. I did not realize the show was of the quality that it would become. I sure as heck was not thinking even when the, when the time card, like the timestamp for 800 something AD popped up on my screen. It wasn't like I was like, oh, now we're going to get the answer to the Himalayan corpse. I had totally oh, forgotten no. about it. I thought I thought it was Jennifer. I thought it was oh, like when really? she looked into it and she was like something about his eyes. I was like, it's your eyes. And I like freaked ah. out. But, oh, but up to that point, she had only been talking about Cole's eyes. Sure. But I was so like, it's too obvious it. that it's Cole. I was like, what would make like be more interesting? And I thought it hmm. would be her. Yeah. But then she later on complains about eyes with Olivia, right? Uh, yeah, like, yeah she does. Three. Yeah, so, they put that in there, yeah. 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 Um, I think, And I think another theory was um, when Cole gets the headache when he's close to it um, in the night room, There, I think there was a very, like, a prevailing theory that the corpse was Cole and the reason why he got the headache was, you know, because of the paradox effect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So – it was a good mystery, and they gave us an answer, um, but it's really fun when you're watching this episode. <laughs> um, okay, so going to the club, the White Dragon, um, and this face-off, what I love about this is this is another example of the show finally giving us an answer to something we have been wondering since the pilot, but the way it's going to play out, like, we thought that this big meeting was going to be between Cole and Leland Goines, but actually, like... As fun as as fun as it is to watch Leland Goins like snorting coke in a 1980s like <laughs> nightclub in Tokyo, what it's really about is this face off like between Cole and Ramsey, which we certainly were never expecting. So it's kind of answering some things and fulfilling expectations and things we were wondering about since the pilot, but doing it in a way that like we couldn't have predicted that Ramsey would be there and be like the opposing force that Cole has to deal with. Um, I mean, it is kind of a fun, like, head desk that Leland Goines had zero interest in buying that corpse until Cole shows up and tells him that there's a virus inside of it. Like, he was walking away from that deal. And there's another, like, interesting line where the, I think, Japanese mobster is tells Leland, this piece could be part of your legacy, um, like, to his daughter, 
which is really interesting thinking about sort of like how the story plays out. Yeah. And another clue that Jennifer's in the box. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What I also like about this fight is I think this is actually a lot of the violence on this show. It's it's like a brutal, uncomfortable, ugly fight to watch, right? Like these are two people, they're saying it's like the things that only somebody who's really close to you would say and they like, well, it's, it's a knife fight. So to say that it cut deep is like a pun that I is a terrible pun. But like um, when when Ramsey's like, I should have like I should have killed you or I should have let you die when you were a boy. It's just like, God, those are just like horrible things that only two people that are that close can like say to each other and just like wound so deeply. Like it's just awful to watch. Um, and then, like, Ramsey, like, actually, like, stabbing Cole and then, like, almost kind of being taken aback that that just happened, right? Like, the way it just goes down, it's just kind of painful to watch. And then thinking about that, like, Ramsey wins this round, but, like, the next time they're going to be confronting them each other in, like, violence, it's going to be in Brothers. Um, so it just kind of takes on sort of, like, even – it makes me even more sad and, like, ugh, watching it. <laughs> Than even it did like the first time. So that takes us to Ramsey then going to prison. Um, he's there between 1987, 1995. He spends eight years in jail. And as Beep, as you mentioned before, he believes he's killed Cole. So when right. I guess the imba- the um the diplomat from the US Embassy who's trying to help him says to him, Maybe you deserve to be here. Um I think that's definitely something Ramsey feels, right? Like he believes that he's killed his brother. And I think he's, at least the way I took it, like he's not somebody who's struggling against his fate of serving that prison sentence. Um, that takes us to Olivia's letters to Ramsey. And I, one of sort of the things that I notice so much with Olivia at this stage is she tells, whether it's Aaron Marker or Jennifer or Ramsey, she is so adept at telling people exactly what they want to hear, right? So, like, whether it's Aaron kind of going to these baser, baser instincts of, like, I just want to protect Cassie, even if it means that I'm, like, deciding for her. And he's like, I know it's wrong. And she's like, no, like, you're a lion, like, protecting your pride. Um, and you should, like, revel in this, like, primal instinct and not feel badly about it. Or we'll get to the Jennifer scene where she's, like, empathizing with Jennifer and, like, her lack of relationship with her parents. You want to be a daughter again. Here, she tells Ramsey, your son will be safe. You are not alone. You are important. You are valued. You are loved. It's just like master manipulation. Um, do you guys have – before we get into sort of like the book she gives Ramsey, do you guys have any – like in addition to learning that it, that's Olivia's name, any thoughts sort of about how Olivia is just so good at manip- – like emotionally manipulating people? Yeah. She's her just voice so creepy. Is so amazing. <laughs> in that way. <laughs> Her voice. Yeah, we talk about that all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just so – you've never heard a voice like that on like on TV. It's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She has Ramsey write down everything he knows. I assume that that's what they then use, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's it, – it is funny though, isn't it, in, in terms of like who the witness ends up being, what the witness ends up representing, stuff like that. Because I, I know the word of the witness is the the big uh, – what's it called? The, the big – poster thing (laughs) um yeah i wonder if you can get that for your wall at home but um 
But really, like what he does, what he writes down for them is in another way, the word of the witness, you know, right. it's the word of like what he has witnessed, you know, literally. So I, and I, and I think in that sense, it is kind of ambiguous. I think you, you guys probably talk a lot about this, like at, at a later stage, but like what, like who is the witness? Could there be multiple witnesses? You know, what does it mean to, do you make like your own meaning in terms of who the witness is? And I think there is some interesting aspects of, of Ramsey witnessing things that, that come into play. Yeah, I mean, they even later say it in the religious ceremony, right? Like, we're all here to witness. Um, yeah, witness with us. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Um, so she sends him some books to study. Um, Ramsey also seems to learn, he becomes, it seems like, fluent in Japanese. Um, and he learned, she sends him Julius Caesar, which is kind of interesting when you think about uh, Olivia's eventual arc of overthrowing <laughs> who she thought was the witness, but it was really herself. Um, and then also the art of war. Um, do you guys know how to pronounce? I'm like embarrassed because everybody reads this, but is it Sun Tzu? Is that how you yes. pronounce the author? Sun Tzu, yes. the Sun art Tzu. of war. Yeah. So which then um, – is quoted from when we get to like the the final jailhouse scene where Ramsey basically takes a beating um, from that man for years before he finally like in what is I think one of the most badass lines of the show like I just killed you without even lifting a finger um, the the quote the supreme art of war is subdue the enemy without fighting is from that line is like the fifth principle in the art of war and just thinking about the fact that Olivia recommends these books. Obviously, I think Olivia has studied them herself. Because if you think about like Olivia's long con in season three, where she basically just kind of sits back and pokes, she's sitting in a cage, right? Like the idea that you subdue an enemy without fighting, that Olivia is sitting in a cage all during season three, and preying on and poking at all of the kind of natural fissures that already exist in Project Splinter, like in that group, at different people's insecurities and different people's priorities. And she takes them down from do like she doesn't actually physically fight anyone. And it's like the longest con ever. And so like just thinking about sort of what she recommends to Ramsey and that kind of approach of how you subdue an enemy and then thinking of Olivia in season three, it's just really fun because you're like, I think Olivia probably read that book too. So I know like beep, we're about to get into, I guess, well, we have two visits to the monkey mansion in two different places, but we're going to see Jennifer there. But when he when Ramsey finally gets out of prison, um, the traveler arrives at 1995 Virginia, and it's our first visit to Monkey Mansion, which was in Nikita 108. It was, yeah, that mansion was in Nikita. We like yelled when we saw it, because um, mm -hmm. also filmed in <laughs> Toronto. Yeah, as was the pool, that empty pool, Ooh. where Olivia ends up at the bottom. That's 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 in Nikita as well. Okay, so there's two other religious references. Uh, the first is when Ramsey arrives um, at the Monkey Mansion, we have a voiceover from Olivia, and she says that Ramsey's time in the desert is over. And my mind just went to, I mean, there's a lot of things in the Bible about people in, in the desert and spending time in the desert, but Jesus is tested in the desert for 40 days. And then when he returns from the desert, that's when he carries out his ministry. Um, and so they're, you know, not quite like, like, 
I think it's more like Ramsey's almost like a prophet, whereas like the actual witness is like the Messiah. But this idea of a time of being tested where he was tested in prison and now he's coming to like be to fulfill his like religious mission in this cult. I thought that was like an interesting way to phrase his time while he was in prison. Um, and then this is my final like nerd rabbit hole. So the whole scene when he arrives at the mansion and then the scene with the leaves, which we will talk about like in a second, but just the music that's playing. So there's another like another time where Amazon pops up like what piece is playing. And it's a choral piece, Ave Venum Corpus. Um, and I haven't taken Latin in a really, really, really long time. So I looked up. Um, it's Hail True Body as the l- translation from the Latin. So I called up my mother-in-law because my mother-in-law is um, has a degree in sacred music and she directs <laughs> church choirs. So I was like, okay. I look up what it is. It's Mozart. I can't remember if it's just Beethoven or if Mozart is also on the word of the witness. But I asked her. I'm like, okay. I'm watching a scene that's like this crazy religious cult and they're doing this like ceremony and this is the choral piece that's playing. Can you tell me like in the real world – what's the story behind this choral piece and like when would you use it um and she said you know it's it's a arrangement of a latin chant that's talking about the body of christ and you would you normally use it she's like you use it during communion um but but you normally use it during lent when you're awaiting resurrection which i was like what because this whole thing with the red forest is trying basically to like cheat death right like, mm-hmm. it's another form of resurrection, maybe not of the body, but, like, of your consciousness and getting to, like, live forever. Yeah, and so Ramsey is being resurrected in this episode, right? Like, as a new mm-hmm. being, almost. Right, like, as the traveler, yeah. right? So I thought it was really, you know, I'm sure it probably was just a choral piece that was chosen because it sounds religious and it's a religious no, ceremony. I don't, I don't think so. You I don't think, think they so? did that on purpose. I for you sure think, they think did so, it. yeah. So it's just really fun that it's a piece that in, like, the Christian faith is used awaiting a resurrection. And this scene of putting the two uh, necklaces together and sort of the first time we see a paradox starting to achieve green turning to red and sort of, like, how much, like – joy and fervor that fills within like Olivia and the pallid man like they're this is bringing about that promise of resurrection and they refer to Shaw like their father like it's just his father told us it's just really interesting to think about that it's a song about awaiting resurrection and this is the first glimpse we get at this wider mythology as to why the army of the 12 monkeys are doing all of this Oh, I, I did want to make a point about that both mm-hmm. times he said it he said your father I, I don't think they share a father. They're oh, like yeah, yeah. To their mother half, and, half and she yeah. raised is it just them both. Because yeah. Kirshner, so it's just Kirshner. Kirshner is Olivia's biological father and they only share yes. Mantis as a mother. Yeah. Correct. So when they say father. No, he literally said mean, your father. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, your dad. Like To Olivia? Yeah. Yeah. Your father. Both times he, he said your father, not just father. So he's he's referring to Kirshner and not Shaw? Because I thought it was just like father. I thought it was like, because I remember when I first watched and he said father, it's just like father told us. I didn't know if he meant father as in like a religious leader and not like a biological Mm. connection. I'm pretty sure he did say your father because I think we don't know yet that they're siblings at all yet. We only find that out when we meet the mom. 
Yeah. In which case, I don't know exactly which one he was referring to. Right. Or if they kind of changed that. I'm pretty sure that it was like Kirshner, like your father. I think that, that he did. Like the vision that he had. Yeah, for what exactly. Was, yeah. What they were going to accomplish. Yeah. Got yeah. it. So I, I just, I think I love, like, first of all, it's like a real, visually, it's a really cool scene. Like the water and the platform in the middle and then the leaves, like the crazy paradox with the like we've gotten teases of the paradox with the blue light. But this is like much more dramatic and it's kind of teasing what we're going to see then in the next episode paradox when Cole takes the uh, cr- the the Christ imagery even further, <laughs> and like stabs himself and is like raised in the air with his arms out. Um, so that visually it's a really cool scene. But what I also loved about it is, you know, the pallid man, particularly, but Olivia also, have been these like menacing figures th- throughout all of season one. And this scene is aesthetically beautiful. There's like this beautiful choral music playing. Olivia like greets Ramsey, like she embraces him. There's like this calmness and peacefulness, and they're so like joyful at seeing this like. what they think is like a confirmation of their faith um, and what they're trying to bring about. And it's just such an interesting turn for our antagonists to see them like this. And even if you're like, I mean, it's a really fun in that you're like, wow, this show is really starting to get pretty sci-fi, which is, I think is like awesome. But like, it also is just a really interesting turn in seeing our antagonists kind of in a different way. Um, not to say that they don't like do terrible things, but seeing them in full cult mode, you're like, whoa, what is going on here? <laughs> it's not just about the plague. Yeah, I love that. I love getting to know like that faction better. I think the more there's so much still that we don't quite know about them even after the show ends. But I really love everything that we do get about them because like everything that nuances their perspective makes the show more interesting. Yeah, I love getting um, you know, pieces of the mythology even if it's kind of mysterious. I love getting that outside of the plague stuff because, you know, like you said at the beginning, they're just like so bad like, "Oh, we want to cause a plague." And it's like, "Well, that's boring." Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> or it would be if that were the point. Right, Not exactly, dissing the yeah. show for that. I get it, but I like that they layered them. Otherwise, it's like, "Okay, awful, terrible people." And are these, this is the first encroachment. So, I mean, this is kind of the setup to what's going to be the season two plot that these increasing number of paradoxes are turning, you know, it's turning the world from green to red. Mm -hmm. But they make a point of Adler identifying the, the leaves that show up in the machine, which are English ivy, like the ivy that's at the center of this ceremony. Is that ivy from here or is it actually from the future because Adler measures like the carbon dioxide levels or was like, this isn't from our time. It's like, what's happening here? What sends those Ivy league, Ivy leaves through the machine or that's just something different. I don't uh, know. I think that's something different. When yeah. It's just like busting holes in time. Mm-hmm. So it's just recurring. Cause it's interesting that both it's English Ivy, but okay. look that up and see what it means. No, I'm not. <laughs> I've gone down like seven rabbit holes. I'm officially dropping the mic on the, on the rabbit holes. I'll for do this it. Podcast. See if it has a meaning. <laughs> Um, okay, so Beep, we've got some big Jennifer scenes, and I know that you love Jennifer. So do you want to walk Yay. us through Jennifer and Leland? We've got some two really big scenes, and Jennifer is also a daughter in a box. Um, so you want to talk us through <sighs> Jennifer and Leland? Because the scene, like, crushes my soul. 
I literally just want to kill Leland again. (laughs) And I know he's just not dead yet in this like timeline, but I'm like, I want to shoot you immediately. He, dude, he knows, he knew the whole time that she was innocent. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I don't know whether he's just like burdened by her because of the similarities between her and her mother. And her mother did try to kill her, right? Oh, yeah, that was me. Right. I, I don't know. I guess I have trouble maybe understanding his motivation besides just he is kind of the evil, like, I want to make a lot of money guy. Because I I feel like he just literally doesn't want to be burdened with her and her existence. Like, he thinks, I mean, he thinks that the drawings, I mean, you contrast this with watching this scene, maybe then think of the scene in season four, where you have Nicodemus and his daughter, Chorus. Mm. And you have two daughters that are primary and two fi- and Jennifer watching him describing his daughter. And here you have Leland Goines viewing his daughter's behavior through the lens of his experience with his wife, which was mental illness, leading to her even trying to kill her own child, as opposed to Nicodemus viewing his daughter's behavior because she's a primary as like a talent and a gift right and 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 understanding it and loving her like not even not even despite of it but like like embracing it and celebrating it um and you contrast that and and i just remember watching jennifer's face and then you think when you have that in mind you're watching this scene i mean the only thing i can think is that he thinks she's crazy like her mother was crazy and her mother proved to be a danger to other people but i mean that's the best motivation i can ascribe to him yeah because it's one thing to say okay you have mental illness you need help it's a whole other layer for him to allow her to continue to believe not only that she may have killed those people but that he believes she killed those people Mm -hmm. when he knows that she didn't that she didn't and to to allow someone to like bear that is just that's cruel. But I think he is, I think that is like, he is sort of the initial sort of red herring in terms of like being a bad guy and thinking that he's like the big bad of the show kind of, right? Because he genuinely is a villain, you know, like a traditional, sure. classic, evil, maniacal grin villain. And I think that that's kind of what that means is that, yes, he did mm. like see Jennifer, like when her, what he sees as, as a mental illness uh, manifest he was like oh no it's like her mom this is going to be a problem for me i i you know I, I can't be bothered with this and then he could like make two two problems go away like at once by having her framed for this murder because it solved like and then he could have her locked up so she was out of his way and it solved his problem you know and that's like literally he is that kind of evil Sure. And it pre- that prevents an investigation as well. Yeah, exactly. I think Deacon sums it up <laughs> in season three when he's like, your dad's an asshole. Yep. <laughs> like, right? Yes. He's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. The two things that I think that, um, you know, this is in the last episode, we met the daughters. You have and, and thinking about the conversation that Jennifer's going to have with Olivia at the end of the episode um, when she's when her father leaves her. And she's banging on the door again, as we've talked about before, like on previous episodes, she's not yelling like, but you're my father. She's yelling, I'm your daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's always about her 
like her place and like when your father locks you up and like leaves you behind like that like she's like what is her place in the world and that's what olivia is going to offer her um at the end of the episode the other detail that i never picked up on and i was just kind of curious about she has like the charcoal drawings and she takes the rubbing of the charcoal and she spreads it over her eyes which i had never made the connection is that why the the daughters in the post-apocalyptic world, like Hannah, spread the charcoal over their eyes like that? Ooh, yeah, probably. Yeah, potentially. Um, I don't know that it's like... It just made me think of that. Like, yeah, it was no, such totally. a like moment when she spreads it across her eyes. And then I think of like how Hannah and the other daughters always have that like charcoal like smudged across their eyes like that. Mm-hmm. Um. So I think we should probably go straight to Jennifer and Monkey Mansion, where we have the, like, incredible, makes you want to yell Easter egg of Jennifer being dragged up the stairs, yelling, climb the steps, ring the bell. I mean, what oh, are you yeah. going to say about that? I mean, I, I don't even say, I know this is normally I just yell, like, what the fuck? But, I like, <laughs> it's just, like, oh, my God. Um, just another example of things such coming Such a brilliant of- callback. Such an immediate throwaway line. Mm-hmm. She sounds like a crazy ranting lunatic, especially since we just got through the part, you know, of her dad. And, and as much as you, like, can't relate to him. Oh, I know what I was going to say before. He turns out to be a minnow. Just like you were saying, Selena, he's like totally evil, but he turns out to be so inconsequential to a large Mm -hmm. degree. Oh, Leland Goines? Yeah. 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 But after, you know, even though his motivations are no good and we can't relate to that and we're just like, you're evil and you're the worst, everything we see of Jennifer is like, she kind of is nutballs. So even if she didn't do that, you know, it's like, man, are you a danger? I don't know. You're like, woo. Mm -hmm. But- yeah, so her, you know, she's literally being dragged up steps. So, like, oh, I get it. Climb steps, ring the bell. Like, she could have just meant, like, ring the bell if I need something. Or she could have meant literally nothing because she's, you know, at this point, she's nothing but nuts. Right. And so it, it's just that tie back is incredible. And obviously, you know, they wouldn't have known it at this point. So, like, just props to them for keeping track of their own show, their own mythology, their own writing and being able to tie that back so that it's so impactful from the very beginning. Yeah, I remember hearing, and I think it was, I can't remember if it was the sci-fi podcast, but um, where Tara Metalis and the writers were talking about how they, they, they put that in there on purpose, intentionally, that it would be something that ultimately was like important in the mythology, right? right. That they would come back to, even if they didn't, specifically know that that would mean right like the actual monkey bell and all that but it was it what it was put in there to be like this sounds cool and we're gonna figure out what that means later oh everything she said was right like i love that it's just like all of the primaries it's like all of these important things all jumbled up and they're just coming out at random times and just like Jennifer, we don't know that it's important or what it means. But like once you can see, quote, like the puzzle from above, you're like, oh, my God, like this was in the 11th <laughs> episode of season one. Yeah. Right. Like we're not going to know what it means until demons in season four. But it's also funny sometimes, I think, when you can sort of reverse engineer it like that and you can be like, OK, in this particular instance, they needed a scenario where someone climbed the steps and rang a bell. <laughs> and you can see sort of like the mechanics, like not to like talk it down. It's still really impressive, but you can see yeah. sort of how they went really like 
desperate in there like how the hell and it was like so elaborate and so over the top to get them to a place where they could climb some steps and ring a bell and I just think that's so funny (laughs) yeah I love it like we're gonna go to medieval times right like (laughs) I love it um it's my husband's most favorite line in the whole show is um when Cole says you want to get medieval like he made me (laughs) rewind it like seven times and I'm like that's such a dad joke and he's like I know but I'm a dad and I think it's funny like so rewind it um so <laughs> I'm sorry, that was delayed, but <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So what the thing when Jennifer is brought upstairs and the bath is waiting for her, we don't know at this time that her mother tried to drown her in the bath. But like now that we do know that, and you have Jennifer like staring down that hallway to a bath that's been drawn for her alone. And then you think about the conversation that she has afterwards with Olivia, where Olivia is like presenting herself as a new maternal figure. Mm-hmm. Oh, like the layers of like emotion and having to go walk down that hallway. Like what a bath, all of the emotions that must bring up within Jennifer. It just kind of like hurts my heart. I also didn't remember, and I, I don't know if I just looked closer this time, but that that bath was presented as like a shrine. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many, you know, like candles and such an ambiance and whatever put into that. It was almost like a continuation of their ceremonial type, you know, reverence. Well, yeah, and we're going to see it again. We're going to see it two more times, right? We're going to have... Cassie will be forced to take the bath in season two. That's kind of like a trough, though, but okay. (laughs) But then doesn't she deliver Ethan in a bath? Yeah, she does. Am I remembering that right? She does. No, but I'm just literally saying when Cassie has to do it in season two, it's like a trough. It's not set up like... Oh, right. Well, she didn't have it. Olivia didn't have as much time to prepare all the candles and the rose petals. Sure, sure. I mean, when you're kidnapping people, you know, sometimes the timeline gets a little Yeah, she didn't have time to go to like Bed Bath & Beyond and get like the bath bombs and like set it all up. (laughs) But like, but also Cassie delivers Ethan in the bath. It's like, I guess it's like part of their like cult ritual um, is a bath. No, I mean, water symbolizes rebirth. Yeah, good point. And that, I mean, that's happening in all these situations. She, you know, she's bringing Jennifer back as a daughter. They're preparing Cassie to come, you know, back as a mother. And then. Oh, and you have the water. You know, Ethan in the water to like raise as their savior. And you have the paradox that occurred on the water. Yeah. There is a lot of water imagery and rebirth. That's a good point. Um, I have to say, so leading into, we'll get to the substance of. Olivia and Jennifer's conversation, which I think is just fascinating for both of their characters. But my, like, Olivia combing Jennifer's hair, like, as a mom, it's something I do with my daughters every night after they take a bath. It's, like, one of the, like, basic, like, intimate, like, mother-daughter things that you can do that's kind of, like, both an everyday thing, right? And and there's some days, like, I think nothing of it. But it's also, like, when my – especially my oldest daughter, it's, like, her, like, confessional time. It's, like, when she tells me everything that, like, you know, earlier in the day when I was, like, how was your day? And she's, like, it was fine. What I actually find out, like, three hours later when I'm combing through her hair is when she actually tells me stuff. It's, like, such an intimate mother-daughter kind of everyday ritual. And that, that Olivia is using it to manipulate Jennifer and and – 
either recreate or give Jennifer a mother-daughter moment that perhaps she's never had because of her super fucked up relationship with her mother. It's just, it's just super messed up. <laughs> um, yeah. But Beep, do you want to walk us through, it's just the whole thing in the box. Um, Olivia saying, my father was the same. He had plans for me. Oh, Jennifer and Olivia have a lot in common. They do. I mean, Jennifer's been, it was a little larger box, but Jennifer's been in a box for what, four years? I mean, they, they put her in there in 2011, or not till 2014, 2011? Mm-hmm. Which one was it? I think it was 2011. No, it was, because remember she says she's been in there for like 763 days talking to ghosts, something like that. It was 700 and something, so it's only two years. But still, I mean, she, you know, they've both been locked in there. Their fates determined by someone else. They were born, you know, for a purpose, which is something that Olivia later um, raises her, you know, quote unquote daughter to do. Same thing. Like human beings are just pawns in this entire scheme. And I assume, I mean, Olivia and those guys know about primaries already, obviously. So they know, you know, that Jennifer is special. She knows more about Jennifer than Jennifer does. Mm-hmm. And so she starts promising all those things. And it's just like you mentioned earlier, everything that's ever directed at Jennifer is not about the role that other people play in her life, but the role that she can inhabit because she has no place in the world. So do you want to be a daughter? Olivia doesn't offer to be her mother. She's yeah. I mean, she says, him. I can, I can, I can protect you. Right. I mean, that's offering it without giving the role in me. Sure. Of course. Yeah, but she but doesn't, you know, offer what she's going to be to Jennifer. No, per you can se. be a daughter again. Yeah. She gives, yeah. this is what she does. She gives Jennifer a list of actions that Olivia can perform, but she gives Jennifer an identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also just thought it was, I mean, it's always hard to know with Olivia what is an act and what is like true emotion? I mean, I it's both beautiful. I mean, just in terms of like the actual actresses in real life, it's a beautifully acted scene, and there's so much emotion. It's pretty sparse dialogue, but it's there's so much emotion. But Olivia shows more. I think it's one of the most emotional Olivia scenes in the show when she talks about like a thing in a box, and she almost looks like she's on the verge of tears. And mm-hmm. I. I mean, I know that like people get manipulated by Olivia a lot, but I th- I think there's a maybe the reason why she's able to sell that is because there's a piece of that that is true to her and she really oh, feels, yeah. you know, 100 percent like that's like the best the best liars sort of lace it with truth. Right. And that's exactly what she mm-hmm. does is that in many ways, like if she had her way, then she could fashion Jennifer into a quote unquote daughter and she could use her as the pawn that she wanted to use her as. And and I think that's like what it is, is that there's such a deep underlying, just just feeling of, of being used in Olivia that, that is what she tries to turn around and gain control, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what she was a tool. She was a, a weapon and she wants to be the one calling the shots. And that's like ultimately... The beauty of her journey is that that's exactly what she becomes. Mm-hmm. And that's her downfall. But it is that that quest for like breaking out and, and seeking control when she herself was like, like that pain is so real for her and such a motivator as well. Yeah. Now, am I remembering it's been a really long time since or I, I mean, I haven't watched since season four aired the um, when Olivia is brought to Monkey Mansion. Does she also 
do the bath and her mother brush- and Mantis brushes her hair and talks to her about her purpose. Am I remembering that right? It'll be an interesting thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I know you recall. are right. Yeah, you are right. Because that's when we th- we think that she's sort of going against her mother when having the child or, or but but she actually does want want to follow the word of the witness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um Yeah. I think it's just I mean, and this is, you know, everything that we um like see Jennifer doing from now on with like the hostile takeover and the virus, it's all Jennifer basically being manipulated by Olivia, like from this point on. Um and oh it's just like yeah, I thought it was like a really beautifully acted scene and just really interesting for both their characters. Um, we didn't mention, before we get into the big conclusion, we didn't mention Aaron. Um, this is kind of the descent of the beginning of the descent of Aaron Marker. Um, he, I mean, I don't think we probably talk enough about that, like all of these fighting the plague also came at a cost to Aaron, right? Like he loses his job, his career's over. Um, he's, I think even more so than Cassie starting to feel like this is a hopeless cause and that the plague's inevitable. Um, the fun mythology fact that I had never picked up on before um, was when he talks to the senator and before he sees like Olivia or like around the time that he sees Olivia in the hallway, the origin story of Project Spearhead, where we were just at, is that um, like we hear the senator talk about a selected like pre-designated personnel protocol in event of emergency and Olivia um, and the army and the 12 monkeys, they were the investor. So project spearhead where everything went down the last two episodes, the original money behind it was army of the 12 monkeys, Olivia Ramsey. Like, I don't know if that was like their contingency plan or like what their motivation was for that. But I had never like, it's probably the third time I watching. I never picked up on that detail that they were behind Project Spearhead. And they use that term, um, the person spearheading that. And then they show Olivia. So had you guys picked up on that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what else no, to say. No, that's okay. I'm the one, like, you know, going down rabbit holes about songs and then missing obvious clues like them saying Spearhead. So we bring balance. We bring balance to each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, that brings us to the end with Jones. You realize that... One of the reasons, I mean, obviously the situation's desperate because it seems like Cole's vital signs are plummeting. But the other reason why Jones is so desperate to get Cole to 2015 is because she's worried about preserving this causal loop um, that she met him in 2015. So once you know that on rewatch, her like desperation where she's yelling, like, just send him, like, it doesn't matter. Um, you kind of see that like through, through a new lens. Um, and uh, her last conversation, the, the conversation between Adler and Jones, we find out that Adler is one of many parents um, who also lost a loved one because of the plague. Um, and so Adler is another character that maybe more quietly, but also presumably is being driven by losing his son into, you know, what he's doing as we watch him on the show. Um, but the quote, there's two sort of like takeaways from this. Again, the show allowing two characters to have kind of a quiet conversation and kind of get into their heads. Um, Joan says, with referring to children, the greatest lie is believing we are shaping them, that we have any control. They make us, they can destroy us. Um, and it's like a really 
really like hit me um as a parent because having like my experience having children is like I don't think anything's transformed my life more than that than those than them coming into my life but also just thinking about the characters in the show how how many different characters are transformed either by having a child or by losing a child I mean the list goes on and on right like Jones um Ramsey, Cassie, Cole, like, so it's just, um, I thought like a really beautifully written line. And I love when they let Jones, sometimes they let Jones just have these like really like lofty soliloquies and they're just beautifully written. Um, but the gut punch is when she says, my last breath will be here. Yeah. And you know, at that moment, that's one of those lines that you know, that's going to be true eventually. And it's always in the back of your mind. And they do it twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to watch Jones die twice I at Project know. Splitter, right? She dies in season two before everything's reset. And then, I mean, obviously my mind went to that, like, you know, gut-wrenching scene where she dies with Cole right before the end. Yeah. I um, thought it was interesting. And I don't, I don't know that this connection was ever made. But even if I'm reading stuff that's not there, I don't care. I think it's fun. Um, she also made the comment, I am the clock. And when you mm-hmm. think about at the end when she dies, like that's when time has run out and he has to get in the machine by himself. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a beautifully written dialogue. She also says, hope is the luxury of those unburdened by fate. And just thinking, I mean, about all of the characters and kind of struggling with that like tension between fate and free will, but also like what what the choice that Cole is going to make at, in the season one finale that it's like flies in the face of fate um saying hope is the luxury of those unburdened by fate or maybe hope is what allows people to fight what they think their destiny is right Mm -hmm. like so i thought that that was another interesting line so this episode ends with cole bleeding out on the floor the note in his pocket that he told cassie in the future to give to him when she's dying at the CDC in 2017. Um, and he's going to come back and he's bleeding out on her floor on the floor. And that's, what's going to get us in the next episode to Jones. Um, and one of my favorite episodes, paradox. So that's what we'll be talking about next time. Um, did you guys have anything else? No, ma'am. No, I think um, that's it. Yeah. Selena, so much fun to have you Thank on. Thank you for having you. me. This was great. Sorry. Um, I'm a little under the weather, but it was still really fun. You're under the weather and it's nighttime on a Friday night I in Denmark. I know it's for like you, past so. nine, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. I'm older than you. Nine's not that old. <laughs> but it's a primary. I never know the answer to No, it's not primary. It's not. <laughs> no. Beep was the math teacher. <laughs> Um, well, I hope you'll come back. We've got another. We've got a lot of like big Ramsey moments down the road. Yes, so. and I, I would love to like for some if we get into some more Jennifer stuff as well and whatever. Like yeah. it's all good. Yeah, this is also okay. Great. Good, good. So let so please come back. Um, so yeah, our next episode is going to be one twelve paradox. Um, that's probably going to be like a four hour podcast. Um, we're probably going to cry, like just prepare yourself to adjust your volume. <laughs> um, and we're going to have Megan Ghostwine from Twitter, who is a wonderful Yay! writer, both about TV and a prolific and wonderful fanfic writer. Um, so we're glad we're so excited that she's going to be joining us to talk about that. She's definitely one that can, uh, turn on the feels. So <laughs> get ready for that. And Selena, we'll look forward to having you back. Um, and if you guys don't have anything else, then we'll see you soon.